Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 2, Chapter 13 of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book 2, Riches. CHAPTER Thirteen: THE PROGRESS OF AN EPIDEMIC That it is at least as difficult to stay a moral infection as a physical one, that such a disease will spread with the malignity and rapidity of the plague, that the contagion, when it has once made head, will spare no pursuit or condition, but will lay hold on people in the soundest health, and become developed in the most unlikely constitutions is a fact as firmly established by experience as that we human creatures breathe an atmosphere a blessing beyond appreciation would be conferred upon mankind if the tainted in whose weakness or wickedness these virulent disorders are bred could be instantly seized and placed in close confinement not to say summarily smothered before the poison is communicable as a vast fire will fill the air to a great distance with its roar so the sacred flame which the mighty barnacles had fanned caused the air to resound more and more with the name of myrtle it was deposited on every lip and carried into every ear there never was there never had been there never again should be such a man as mr myrtle nobody as aforesaid knew what he had done but everybody knew him to be the greatest that had appeared down in bleeding heart yard where there was not one unappropriated halfpenny, as lively an interest was taken in this paragon of men as on the stock exchange. Mrs. Plornish, now established in the small grocery and general trade, in a snug little shop at the crack end of the yard, at the top of the steps, with her little old father and Maggie acting as assistants, habitually held forth about him over the counter in conversation with her customers. Mr. Plornish, who had a small share in a small builder's business in the neighbourhood, said, trowel in hand, on the tops of scaffolds and on the tiles of houses, that people did tell him, as Mr. Myrtle was the one, mind you, to put us all to rights in respect of that which all on us looked to, and to bring us all safe home as much as we needed, mind you, for to be brought. Mr. Baptist, sole lodger of Mr. and Mrs. Plornish, was reputed in whispers to lay by the savings, which were the result of his simple and moderate life, for investment in one of Mr. Myrtle's certain enterprises. The female bleeding hearts, when they came for ounces of tea, and hundredweights of talk, gave Mrs. Plornish to understand that how, ma'am, they had heard from their cousin Mary Ann, which worked in the line, that his lady's dresses would fill three wagons, and how she was as handsome a lady, ma'am, as lived no matter where's, and a busk like marble itself. That how, according to what they was told, ma'am, it was her son by a former husband as was took into the government, and a general he had been, and armies he had marched again, and victory crowned, if all you heard was to be believed. That how it was reported that Mr. Myrtle's words had been, 
that if they could have made it worth his while to take the whole government, he would have took it without a profit, but that take it he could not, and stand a loss. That how it was not to be expected, ma'am, that he should lose by it, his ways being, as you might say, and utter no falsehood, paved with gold, but that how it was much to be regretted that something handsome hadn't been got up to make it worth his while. For it was such, and only such, that knowed the height to which the bread and butcher's meat had rose, and it was such and only such that both could, and would, bring that height down. So rife and potent was the fever in Bleeding Heart Yard, that Mr. Pancks's rent-days caused no interval in the patients. The disease took the singular form, on those occasions, of causing the infected to find an unfathomable excuse and consolation in allusions to the magic name. "'Now, then,' Mr. Pancks would say to a defaulting lodger. "'Pay up. Come on.' "'I haven't got it, Mr. Pancks,' Defaulter would reply. "'I tell you the truth, sir. When I say I haven't got so much as a single sixpence of it to bless myself with—' "'This won't do, you know,' Mr. Pancks would retort. "'It don't expect it will do, do you?' Defaulter would admit, with a low-spirited, "'No, sir.' having no such expectation. "'My proprietor isn't going to stand this, you know,' Mr. Pancks would proceed. "'He don't send me here for this. Pay up. Come.' The defaulter would make answer. "'Ah, oh, Mr. Pancks, if I was a rich gentleman whose name is in everybody's mouth, if my name was Myrtle, sir, I'd soon pay up, and be glad to do it.' Dialogues on the rent question usually took place at the house doors, or in the entries, and in the presence of several deeply interested bleeding hearts. They always received a reference of this kind with a low murmur of response, as if it were convincing, and the defaulter, however black and discomfited before, always cheered up a little in making it. "'If I was Mr. Myrtle, sir, you wouldn't have cause to complain of me then. No, believe me.' The defaulter would proceed with a shake of the head. "'I'll pay up so quick then, Mr. Pancks, that you shouldn't have to ask me.' The response would be heard again here, implying that it was impossible to say anything fairer, and this was the next thing to paying the money down. Mr. Pancks would be now reduced to saying, as he booked the case, "'Well, you'll have the broker in, and be turned out. That's what'll happen to you. It's no use talking to me about Mr. Myrtle.' "'You're not Mr. Myrtle, any more than I am.' "'Now, sir,' the defaulter would reply, "'I only wish you were him, sir.' The response would take this up quickly, replying with great feeling, "'Only wish you were him, sir.' "'You'd be easier with us if you were Mr. Myrtle, sir,' the defaulter would go on with rising spirits, "'and it will be better for all parties.' "'Better for our sakes, and better for yours, too. "'You wouldn't have to worry no one, then, sir. "'You wouldn't have to worry us, and you wouldn't have to worry yourself. "'You'd be easier in your own mind, sir, "'and you'd leave others easier, too, you would, if you were Mr. Myrtle.' Mr. Pancks, in whom these impersonal compliments produced an irresistible sheepishness, never rallied after such a charge. He could only bite his nails and puff away to the next defaulter. The responsive bleeding hearts would then gather round the defaulter whom he had just abandoned, 
and the most extravagant rumours would circulate among them, to their great comfort, touching the amount of Mr. Merdle's ready money. From one of the many such defeats, of one of many rent days, Mr. Panks, having finished his day's collection, repaired with his notebook under his arm to Mrs. Plornish's corner. Mr. Panks's object was not professional, but social. He had had a trying day, and wanted a little brightening. By this time he was on friendly terms with the Plornish family, having often looked in upon them at similar seasons, and borne his part in recollections of Miss Dorrit. Mrs. Plornish's shop-parlour had been decorated under her own eye, and presented, on the side, towards the shop, a little fiction in which Mrs. Plornish unspeakably rejoiced. This poetical heightening of the parlour consisted in the wall being painted to represent the exterior of a thatched cottage. The artist having introduced, in as effective a manner as he found compatible with their highly disproportionate dimensions, the real door and window. The modest sunflower and hollyhock were depicted as flourishing with great luxuriance on this rustic dwelling, while a quantity of dense smoke issuing from the chimney indicated good cheer within, and also, perhaps, that it had not been lately swept. A faithful dog was represented as flying at the legs of the friendly visitor from the threshold, and a circular pigeon-house, enveloped in a cloud of pigeons, arose from behind the garden paling. On the door, when it was shut, appeared the semblance of a brass plate, presenting the inscription, Happy Cottage, T. and M. Plornish, the partnership expressing man and wife. No poetry and no art ever charmed the imagination more than the union of the two in this counterfeit cottage charmed Mrs. Plornish. It was nothing to her that Plornish had a habit of leaning against it as he smoked his pipe after work, when his hat blotted out the pigeon-house and all the pigeons, when his back swallowed up the dwelling, when his hands in his pockets uprooted the blooming garden and laid waste the adjacent country. To Mrs. Plornish it was still a most beautiful cottage, a most wonderful deception, and it made no difference that Mr. Plornish's eye was some inches above the level of the gable bedroom in the thatch. To come out into the shop, after it was shut, and hear her father sing a song inside this cottage, was a perfect pastoral to Mrs. Plornish. The golden age revived. And truly, if that famous period had been revived, or had ever been at all, it may be doubted whether it would have produced many more heartily admiring daughters than the poor woman. Warned of a visitor, by the tinkling bell at the shop-door, Mrs. Plornish came out of Happy Cottage to see who it might be. "'I guessed it was you, Mr. Panks,' said she, "'for it's quite your regular night, ain't it? Here's father, you see, come out to serve at the sound of the bell like a brisk young shopman. Ain't he looking well? Father's more pleased to see you than if you was a customer.' for he dearly loves a gossip, and when it turns upon Miss Dorrit, he loves it all the more. "'You never heard father in such voice as he is at present,' said Mrs. Plornish, her own voice quavering. She was so proud and pleased. "'He gave us Strephon last night, to that degree that Plornish gets up and makes him this speech across the table. "'John Edward Nandy,' says Plornish to father, "'I never heard you come the warbles, as I have heard you come the warbles this night. "'Ain't it gratifying, Mr. Panks, though, really?' 
Mr. Pancks, who had snorted at the old man in his friendliest manner, replied in the affirmative, and casually asked whether that lively altro chap had come in yet. Mrs. Plornish answered no, not yet, though he had gone to the West End with some work, and had said he should be back by tea-time. Mr. Pancks was then hospitably pressed into Happy Cottage, where he encountered the elder Master Plornish, just come home from school. Examining that young student lightly, on the educational proceedings of the day, he found that the more advanced pupils who were in the large text, and the letter M, had been set the copy, Myrtle Millions. "'And how are you getting on, Mrs. Plornish?' said Pancks, "'since we're mentioning millions.' "'Very steady indeed, sir,' returned Mrs. Plornish. "'Father, dear, would you go into the shop and tidy the window a little bit before tea, your taste being so beautiful?' John Edward Nandy trotted away, much gratified, to comply with his daughter's request. Mrs. Plornish, who was always in mortal terror of mentioning pecuniary affairs before the old gentleman, lest any disclosure she made might rouse his spirit, and induce him to run away to the workhouse, was thus left free to be confidential with Mr. Pancks. "'It's quite true that the business is very steady indeed,' said Mrs. Plornish, lowering her voice, "'and has an excellent connection. The only thing that stands in its way, sir, is the credit.' This drawback, rather severely felt by most people who engaged in commercial transactions with the inhabitants of Bleeding Heart Yard, was a large stumbling-block in Mrs. Plornish's trade. When Mr. Dorrit had established her in the business, the bleeding hearts had shown an amount of emotion and a determination to support her in it that did honour to human nature. Recognising her claim upon their generous feelings as one who had long been a member of their community, they pledged themselves with great feeling to deal with Mrs. Plornish, come what would, and bestow their patronage on no other establishment. Influenced by these noble sentiments, they had even gone out of their way to purchase little luxuries in the grocery and butter-line, to which they were unaccustomed, saying to one another that if they did stretch a point, was it not for a neighbour and a friend, and for whom ought a point to be stretched, if not for such? So stimulated, the business was extremely brisk, and the articles in stock went off with the greatest celerity. In short, if the bleeding hearts had but paid— the undertaking would have been a complete success. Whereas, by reason of their exclusively confining themselves to owing, the profits actually realised had not yet begun to appear in the books. Mr. Pancks was making a very porcupine of himself, by sticking his hair up in the contemplation of this state of accounts, when old Mr. Nandy, re-entering the cottage with an air of mystery, entreated them to come and look at the strange behaviour of Mr. Baptist who seemed to have met with something that had scared him. All three going into the shop, and watching through the window, then saw Mr. Baptist, pale and agitated, go through the following extraordinary performances. First he was observed hiding at the top of the steps leading down into the yard, and peeping up and down the street, with his head cautiously thrust out, close to the side of the shop-door. After very anxious scrutiny, he came out of his retreat, and went briskly down the street as if he were going away altogether, then suddenly turned about, and went at the same pace, and with the same feint, up the street. He had gone no further up the street than he had gone down, when he crossed the road and disappeared. The object of this last manoeuvre was only apparent when his entering the shop with a sudden twist from the steps again, 
explained that he had made a wide and obscure circuit round to the other, or Doyce and Clennam, end of the yard, and had come through the yard and bolted in. He was out of breath by that time, as he might well be, and his heart seemed to jerk faster than the little shop-bell, as it quivered and jingled behind him with his hasty shutting of the door. "'Hello, old chap,' said Mr. Pancks. "'Alto, old boy. What's the matter?' Mr. Baptist, or Signor Cavalletto, understood English now almost as well as Mr. Pancks himself, and could speak it very well, too. Nevertheless, Mrs. Plornish, with a pardonable vanity in that accomplishment of hers, which made her all but Italian, stepped in as interpreter. "'E ask no,' said Mrs. Plornish, "'what go wrong?' "'Come into the happy little cottage, Padrona,' returned Mr. Baptist, imparting great stealthiness to his flurried back-handed shake of his right forefinger. "'Come there!' Mrs. Plornish was proud of the title Padrona, which she regarded as signifying not so much mistress of the house as mistress of the Italian tongue. She immediately complied with Mr. Baptist's request, and they all went into the cottage. "'E ope you know fright,' said Mrs. Plornish then, interpreting Mr. Pancks in a new way with her usual fertility of resource. "'What appen, Pica Padrona?' "'I have seen someone,' returned Baptist. "'I have rincontrato him.' "'Im? Who him?' asked Mrs. Plornish. "'A bad man, a baddest man. I have hoped that I should never see him again.' "'How you know him bad?' asked Mrs. Plornish. "'It does not matter, Padrona. I know it too well.' E "'See you?' asked Mrs. Plornish. "'No, I hope not. I believe not.' "'He says,' Mrs. Plornish then interpreted, addressing her father and Pancks with mild condescension, "'that he has met a bad man, but he hopes the bad man didn't see him.' "'Why?' inquired Mrs. Plornish, reverting to the Italian language. "'Why hope bad man no see?' "'Padrona, dearest,' returned the little foreigner, whom she so considerately protected, "'do not ask, I pray. Once again I say it matters not. I have fear of this man. I do not wish to see him. I do not wish to be known of him. Never again. Enough, most beautiful. Leave it.' The topic was so disagreeable to him, and so put his usual liveliness to the rout, that Mrs. Plornish forbore to press him further the rather as the tea had been drawing for some time on the hob. But she was not the less surprised and curious for asking no more questions. Neither was Mr. Pancks, whose expressive breathing had been labouring hard since the entrance of the little man, like a locomotive engine with a great load getting up a steep incline. Maggie, now better dressed than of yore, though still faithful to the monstrous character of her cap, had been in the background from the first with open mouth and eyes, which staring and gaping features were not diminished in breadth by the untimely suppression of the subject. However, no more was said about it, though much appeared to be thought on all sides, by no means excepting the two young Plornishes, 
who partook of the evening meal as if their eating the bread and butter were rendered almost superfluous by the painful probability of the worst of men shortly presenting himself for the purpose of eating them. Mr. Baptist, by degrees, began to chirp a little, but never stirred from the seat he had taken behind the door, and close to the window, though it was not his usual place. As often as the little bell rang, he started and peeped out secretly, with the end of the little curtain in his hand, and the rest before his face. Evidently not at all satisfied, but that the man he dreaded had tracked him through all his doublings and turnings, with the certainty of a terrible bloodhound. The entrance at various times, of two or three customers, and of Mr. Plornish, gave Mr. Baptist just enough of this employment to keep the attention of the company fixed upon him. Tea was over, and the children were abed and Mrs. Plornish was feeling her way to the dutiful proposal that her father should favour them with Chloe, when the bell rang again, and Mr. Clennam came in. Clennam had been poring late over his books and letters, for the waiting-rooms of the circumlocution office ravaged his time sorely. Over and above that, he was depressed, and made uneasy by the late occurrence at his mother's. He looked worn and solitary. He felt so, too but, nevertheless, was returning home from his counting-house by that end of the yard, to give them the intelligence that he had received another letter from Miss Dorrit. The news made a sensation in the cottage, which drew off the general attention from Mr. Baptist. Maggie, who pushed her way into the foreground immediately, would have seemed to draw in the tidings of her little mother equally at her ears, nose, mouth, and eyes, but at the last were obstructed by tears. She was particularly delighted when Clennam assured her that there were hospitals, and very kindly conducted hospitals, in Rome. Mr. Panks rose into new distinction in virtue of being specially remembered in the letter. Everybody was pleased and interested, and Clennam was well repaid for his trouble. "'But you are tired, sir. Let me make you a cup of tea,' said Mrs. Plornish. "'If you'd condescend to take such a thing in the cottage, and many thanks you too, I am sure, for bearing us in mind so kindly." Mr. Plornish, deeming it incumbent on him, as host, to add his personal acknowledgments, tendered them in the form which always expressed his highest ideal of a combination of ceremony with sincerity. "'John Edward Nandy,' said Mr. Plornish, addressing the old gentleman. "'Sir, it's not too often that you see unpretending actions without a spark of pride, and therefore, when you see them, give rightful honour unto the same, being that if you don't, and live to want them, it follows serve you right." To which Mr. Nandy replied, "'I am heartily of your opinion, Thomas, and which your opinion is the same as mine and therefore no more words and not being backwards with that opinion which opinion giving it as yes thomas yes is the opinion in which yourself and me must ever be unanimously joined by all and where there is not difference of opinion there can be none but one opinion which fully know, Thomas, Thomas, know. Arthur, with less formality, expressed himself gratified by their high appreciation of so very slight an attention on his part, 
and explained, as to the tea, that he had not yet dined, and was going straight home to refresh after a long day's labour, or he would have readily accepted the hospitable offer. As Mr. Pancks was somewhat noisily getting his steam up for departure, he concluded by asking that gentleman if he would walk with him. Mr. Pancks said he desired no better engagement, and the two took leave of Happy Cottage. "'If you will come home with me, Pancks,' said Arthur, when they got into the street, "'and will share what dinner or supper there is, it will be next door to an act of charity, for I am weary and out of sorts to-night.' "'Ask me to do a greater thing than that,' said Pancks, "'when you want it done, and I'll do it.' Between this eccentric personage and Clennam, a tacit understanding and accord had been always improving since Mr. Pancks flew over Mr. Rugg's back in the Marshalsea yard. When the carriage drove away on the memorable day of the family's departure, these two had looked after it together, and had walked slowly away together. When the first letter came from Little Dorrit, nobody was more interested in hearing of her than Mr. Pancks. The second letter, at that moment in Clennam's breast-pocket, particularly remembered him by name. Though he had never before made any profession or protestation to Clennam, and though what he had just said was little enough as to the words in which it was expressed, Clennam had long had a growing belief that Mr. Pancks, in his own odd way, was becoming attached to him. All these strings intertwining made Pancks a very cable of anchorage that night. "'I am quite alone,' Arthur explained as they walked on. "'My partner is away.' busily engaged at a distance on his branch of our business, and you shall do just as you like. "'Thank you. You didn't take particular notice of little Altro just now, did you?' said Pancks. "'No. Why?' "'He's a bright fellow, and I like him,' said Pancks. "'Something has gone amiss with him to-day. Have you any idea of any cause that can ever overset him?' "'You surprise me.' "'None, whatever.' Mr. Pancks gave his reasons for the inquiry. Arthur was quite unprepared for them, and quite unable to suggest an explanation of them. "'Perhaps you'll ask him,' said Pancks, "'as he's a stranger.' "'Ask him what?' returned Clennam. "'What he has on his mind.' "'I ought first to see for myself that he has something on his mind, I think,' said Clennam. I have found him in every way so diligent, so grateful, for little enough, and so trustworthy, that it might look like suspecting him, and that would be very unjust. True, said Pancks, but I say, you oughtn't to be anybody's proprietor, Mr. Clennam. You're much too delicate. For the matter of that, returned Clennam, laughing, I have not a large proprietary share in Cavalletto. His carving is his livelihood. He keeps the keys of the factory, watches it every alternate night, and acts as a sort of housekeeper to it generally. But we have little work in the way of his ingenuity, though we give him what we have. No, I am rather his adviser than his proprietor. To call me his standing counsel and his banker would be nearer the fact. Speaking of being his banker, is it not curious, Panks? that the ventures which run just now in so many people's heads should run even in little Cavalletto's. "'Ventures?' retorted Pancks with a snort. "'What ventures?' "'These Myrtle Enterprises.' "'Oh! Investments!' said Pancks. "'Aye, aye! 
I didn't know you were speaking of investments.' His quick way of replying caused Clennam to look at him, with a doubt whether he meant more than he said. As it was accompanied, however, with a quickening of his pace, and a corresponding increase in the labouring of his machinery, Arthur did not pursue the matter, and they soon arrived at his house. A dinner of soup and a pigeon-pie, served on a little round table before the fire, and flavoured with a bottle of good wine, oiled Mr. Planks's works in a highly effective manner, so that when Clennam produced his eastern pipe, and handed Mr. Panks another eastern pipe, the latter gentleman was perfectly comfortable. They puffed for a while in silence, Mr. Panks, like a steam-vessel with wind, tide, calm water, and all other sea-going conditions in her favour. He was the first to speak, and he spoke thus. "'Yes, investments is the word.' Clennam, with his former look, said, "'Ah!' "'I'm going back to it, you see,' said Panks. "'Yes, I see you are going back to it,' returned Clennam, wondering why. "'Wasn't it a curious thing that they should run in little Altro's head, eh?' said Panks, as he smoked. "'Wasn't that how you put it?' "'That was what I said.' "'Aye, but think of the old yard having got it. Think of their all meeting with it on my collecting days.' here and there and everywhere, whether they pay or whether they don't pay. Myrtle, 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 always Myrtle. "'Very strange, how these runs on an infatuation prevail,' said Arthur. "'Ain't it?' returned Panks. After smoking for a minute or so, more dryly than comported with his recent oiling, he added, "'Because, you see, these people don't understand the subject.' "'Not a bit,' assented Clennam. "'Not a bit,' cried Panks. "'Know nothing of figures, know nothing of money questions, never made a calculation, never worked it, sir.' "'If they had,' Clennam was going on to say, when Mr. Panks, without change of countenance, produced a sound so far surpassing all his usual efforts, nasal or bronchial, that he stopped. "'If they had,' repeated Panks in an inquiring tone. "'I thought you—spoke,' said Arthur, hesitating what name to give the interruption. "'Not at all,' said Panks. "'Not yet. I may in a minute. If they had—' "'If they had,' observed Clennam, who was a little at a loss how to take his friend. "'Why, I suppose they would have known better.' "'How so, Mr. Clennam?' Panks asked quickly and with an odd effect of having been, from the commencement of the conversation, loaded with the heavy charge he now fired off. "'They're right, you know. They don't mean to be, but they're right.' "'Right in sharing Cavaletto's inclination to speculate with Mr. Myrtle?' "'Perfectly, sir,' said Panks. "'I've gone into it. I've made the calculations. I've worked it. They're safe and genuine.' Relieved by having got to this, Mr. Panks took as long a pull as his lungs would permit at his eastern pipe, and looked sagaciously and steadily at Clennam, while inhaling and exhaling too. In those moments Mr. Panks began to give out the dangerous infection with which he was laden. It is the manner of communicating these diseases. It is the subtle way in which they go about. "'Do you mean, my good Panks,' said Clennam emphatically, 
that you would put that thousand pounds of yours, let us say, for instance, out at this kind of interest?' "'Certainly,' said Pancks. "'Already done it, sir.' Mr. Pancks took another long inhalation, another long exhalation, another long sagacious look at Clennam. "'I tell you, Mr. Clennam, I've gone into it,' said Pancks. "'He's a man of immense resources, enormous capital, government influence. They're the best schemes afloat. They're safe. They're certain.' "'Well,' returned Clennam, looking first at him gravely, and then at the fire gravely. "'You surprise me.' "'Bah!' Pancks retorted. "'Don't say that, sir. It's what you ought to do yourself. Why don't you do as I do?' Of whom Mr. Pancks had taken the prevalent disease, he could no more have told, than if he had unconsciously taken a fever. Bred at first, as many physical diseases are, in the wickedness of men, and then disseminated in their ignorance, these epidemics, after a period, get communicated to many sufferers who are neither ignorant nor wicked. Mr. Pancks might, or might not, have caught the illness himself from a subject of this class, but in this category he appeared before Clennam, and the infection he threw off was all the more virulent. "'And you have really invested?' Clennam had already passed to that word. "'Your thousand pounds, Pancks?' "'To be sure, sir,' replied Pancks boldly, with a puff of smoke, "'and only wish it ten. Now, Clennam had two subjects lying heavy on his lonely mind that night. The one, his partner's long-deferred hope, the other, what he had seen and heard at his mother's. In the relief of having this companion, and of feeling that he could trust him, he passed on to both— and both brought him round again, with an increase and in acceleration of force, to his point of departure. It came about in the simplest manner. Quitting the investment subject, after an interval of silent looking at the fire through the smoke of his pipe, he told Pancks how and why he was occupied with the great national department. "'A hard case it has been, and a hard case it is on Doyce,' he finished by saying, with all the honest feeling the topic roused in him. "'Hard, indeed,' Pancks acquiesced. "'But you manage for him, Mr. Clennam?' "'How do you mean?' "'Manage the money part of the business.' "'Yes, as well as I can. "'Manage it better, sir,' said Pancks. "'Recompense him for his toils and disappointments. "'Give him the chances of the time. "'He'll never benefit himself in that way, "'patient and preoccupied workman. "'He looks to you, sir.' "'I do my best, Pancks.' returned Clennam uneasily. As to duly weighing and considering these new enterprises, of which I have had no experience, I doubt if I am fit for it. I am growing old. "'Growing old!' cried Pancks. <laughs> there was something so indubitably genuine in the wonderful laugh, and series of snorts and puffs, engendered in Mr. Pancks' astonishment at, and utter rejection of, the idea of his being quite in earnest, could not be questioned. "'Growing old!' cried Pancks. "'Hear, hear, hear! Old! Hear him! Hear him!' The positive refusal expressed in Mr. Pancks's continued snorts, no less than in these exclamations, to entertain the sentiment for a single instant, drove Arthur away from it. Indeed, he was fearful of something happening to Mr. Pancks in the violent conflict that took place between the breath he jerked out of himself and the smoke he jerked into himself. 
this abandonment of the second topic threw him on the third. "'Young, old, or middle-aged, Panks,' he said, when there was a favourable pause, "'I am in a very anxious and uncertain state, a state that even leads me to doubt whether anything now seeming to belong to me may be really mine. Shall I tell you how this is? Shall I put a great trust in you?' "'You shall, sir,' said Panks, "'if you believe me worthy of it.' "'I do.' "'You may,' Mr. Panks's short and sharp rejoinder, confirmed by the sudden outstretching of his coaly hand, was most expressive and convincing. Arthur shook the hand warmly. He then, softening the nature of his old apprehensions as much as was possible, consistently with their being made intelligible, and never alluding to his mother by name, but speaking vaguely of a relation of his, confided to Mr. Panks a broad outline of the misgivings he entertained, and of the interview he had witnessed. Mr. Panks listened with such interest that, regardless of the charms of the eastern pipe, he put it in the grate among the fire-irons, and occupied his hands during the whole recital, in so erecting the loops and hooks of hair all over his head, that he looked, when it came to a conclusion, like a journeyman hamlet in conversation with his father's spirit. "'Brings me back, sir,' was his exclamation then, with a startling touch on Clennam's knee, "'brings me back, sir.' to the investments. I don't say anything of your making yourself poor to repair a wrong you never committed. That's you. A man must be himself. But I say this, fearing you may want money to save your own blood from exposure and disgrace, make as much as you can." Arthur shook his head, but looked at him thoughtfully, too. "'Be as rich as you can, sir,' Panks adjured him with a powerful concentration of all his energies on the advice. "'Be as rich as you honestly can. It's your duty. Not for your sake, but for the sake of others. Take time by the forelock. Poor Mr. Doyce, who really is growing old, depends upon you. Your relative depends upon you. You don't know what depends upon you.' "'Well, well, well,' returned Arthur. "'Enough for to-night.' "'One word more, Mr. Clennam,' retorted Panks, "'and then enough for to-night. "'Why should you leave all the gains to the gluttons, knaves, and impostors? "'Why should you leave all the gains that are to be got to my proprietor and the like of him? "'Yet you're always doing it. "'When I say you, I mean such men as you. "'You know you are.' Why, I see it every day of my life. I see nothing else. It's my business to see it. Therefore I say, urged Panks, go in and win. But what of go in and lose? said Arthur. Can't be done, sir, returned Panks. I've looked into it. Name up everywhere. Immense resources. Enormous capital. Great position. High connection. "'Government influence can't be done.' Gradually, after this closing exposition, Mr. Panks subsided, allowed his hair to droop as much as it ever would droop on the utmost persuasion, reclaimed the pipe from the fire-irons, filled it anew, and smoked it out. They said little more, but were company to one another in silently pursuing the same subjects, and did not part until midnight. On taking his leave, Mr. Panks, when he had shaken hands with Clennam, worked completely round him before he steamed out at the door. 
This Arthur received as an assurance that he might implicitly rely on Pancks, if he ever should come to need assistance, either in any of the matters of which they had spoken that night, or any other subject that could in any way affect himself. At intervals all next day, and even while his attention was fixed on other things, he thought of Mr. Pancks's investment of his thousand pounds, and of his having looked into it. He thought of Mr. Pancks's being so sanguine in this matter, and of his not being usually of a sanguine character. He thought of the great national department, and of the delight it would be to him to see Doyce better off. He thought of the darkly threatening place that went by the name of home in his remembrance, and of the gathering shadows which made it yet more darkly threatening than of old. He observed anew that wherever he went, he saw, or heard, or touched, the celebrated name of Myrtle. He found it difficult even to remain at his desk a couple of hours without having it presented to one of his bodily senses through some agency or other. He began to think it was curious, too, that it should be everywhere, and that nobody but he should seem to have any mistrust of it. Though, indeed, he began to remember, when he got to this, even he did not mistrust it. He had only happened to keep aloof from it. Such symptoms, when a disease of the kind is rife, are usually the signs of sickening. End of Book Two, Chapter Thirteen Book Two, Chapter Fourteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Fourteen, Taking Advice. When it became known to the Britons on the shore of the Yellow Tiber that their intelligent compatriot, Mr. Sparkler, was made one of the lords of their circumlocution office, they took it as a piece of news with which they had no nearer concern than with any other piece of news, any other accident or offence, in the English papers. Some laughed, some said, by way of complete excuse, that the post was virtually a sinecure, and any fool who could spell his name was good enough for it. Some, and these the more solemn political oracles, said that Decimus did wisely to strengthen himself, and that the sole constitutional purpose of all places within the gift of Decimus was that Decimus should strengthen himself. A few bilious Britons there were who would not subscribe to this article of faith, but their objection was purely theoretical. In a practical point of view, they listlessly abandoned the matter as being the business of some other Britons unknown, somewhere or nowhere. In like manner, at home, great numbers of Britons maintained, for as long as four-and-twenty consecutive hours, that those invisible and anonymous Britons ought to take it up, and that if they quietly acquiesced in it, they deserved it. But of what class the remiss Britons were composed, and where the unlucky creatures hid themselves, and why they hid themselves, and how it constantly happened that they neglected their interests, when so many other Britons were quite at a loss to account for their not looking after those interests, was not, either upon the shore of the Yellow Tiber, or the shore of the Black Thames, made apparent to men. Mrs. Myrtle circulated the news, as she received congratulations on it, with a careless grace that displayed it to advantage, as the setting displays the jewel. Yes, she said, Edmund had taken the place. 
Mr. Myrtle wished him to take it, and he had taken it. She hoped Edmund might like it, but really she didn't know. It would keep him in town a good deal, and he preferred the country. Still, it was not a disagreeable position, and it was a position. There was no denying that the thing was a compliment to Mr. Myrtle, and was not a bad thing for Edmund if he liked it. It was just as well that he should have something to do, and it was just as well that he should have something for doing it. Whether it would be more agreeable to Edmund than the army remained to be seen. Thus the bosom, accomplished in the art of seeming to make things of small account, and really enhancing them in the process, while Henry Gowan, whom Decimus had thrown away, went through the whole round of his acquaintance between the gate of the people and the town of Albano, vowing almost, but not quite, with tears in his eyes, that Sparkler was the sweetest-tempered, simplest-hearted, altogether most lovable jackass that ever grazed on the public common, and that only one circumstance could have delighted him, Gowan, more than his, the beloved jackass's, getting this post, and that would have been his, Gowan's, getting it himself. He said it was the very thing for Sparkler. There was nothing to do, and he would do it charmingly. There was a handsome salary to draw, and he would draw it charmingly. It was a delightful, appropriate, capital appointment, and he almost forgave the donor his slight of himself, in his joy that the dear donkey, for whom he had so great an affection, was so admirably stabled. Nor did his benevolence stop here. He took pains on all social occasions to draw Mr. Sparkler out, and make him conspicuous before the company and, although the considerate action always resulted in that young gentleman's making a dreary and forlorn mental spectacle of himself, the friendly intention was not to be doubted. Unless, indeed, it chanced to be doubted by the object of Mr. Sparkler's affections. Miss Fanny was now in the difficult situation of being universally known in that light, and of not having dismissed Mr. Sparkler, however capriciously she used him. Hence she was sufficiently identified with the gentleman to feel compromised by his being more than usually ridiculous, and hence, being by no means deficient in quickness, she sometimes came to his rescue against Gowan, and did him very good service. But while doing this she was ashamed of him, undetermined whether to get rid of him or more decidedly encourage him, distracted with apprehensions that she was every day becoming more and more enmeshed in her uncertainties, and tortured by misgivings that Mrs. Myrtle triumphed in her distress. With this tumult in her mind, it is no subject for surprise that Miss Fanny came home one night in a state of agitation from a concert and ball at Mrs. Myrtle's house, and on her sister affectionately trying to soothe her, pushed that sister away from the toilet-table at which she sat angrily trying to cry, and declared, with a heaving bosom, that she detested everybody, and she wished she was dead. "'Dear Fanny, what is the matter? Tell me.' "'Matter, you little mole,' said Fanny. "'If you were not the blindest of the blind, you had no occasion to ask me. The idea of daring to pretend to assert that you have eyes in your head, and just ask me what's the matter.' "'Is it Mr. Sparkler, dear?' "'Mr. Sparkler.' repeated Fanny, with an unbounded scorn, as if he were the last subject in the solar system that could possibly be near her mind. "'No, Miss Bat, it is not.' Immediately afterwards she became remorseful for having called her sister names, declaring with sobs that she knew she made herself hateful, but that everybody drove her to it. "'I don't think you are well to-night, dear Fanny.' "'Stuff and nonsense,' replied the young lady, turning angry again. 
I am as well as you are. Perhaps I might say better, and yet make no boast of it. Poor little Dorrit, not seeing her way to the offering of any soothing words that would escape repudiation, deemed it best to remain quiet. At first Fanny took this ill, too, protesting to her looking-glass that of all the trying sisters a girl could have, she did think the most trying sister was a flat sister, that she knew she was at times a wretched temper, that she knew she made herself hateful, that when she made herself hateful nothing would do her half the good as being told so, but that, being afflicted with a flat sister, she never was told so, and the consequence resulted that she was absolutely tempted and goaded into making herself disagreeable. Besides, she angrily told her looking-glass, she didn't want to be forgiven. It was not a right example that she should be constantly stooping to be forgiven by a younger sister. And this was the art of it, that she was always being placed in the position of being forgiven, whether she liked it or not. Finally she burst into violent weeping, and, when her sister came and sat close at her side to comfort her, said, "'Amy, you're an angel. But I tell you what, my pet,' said Fanny, when her sister's gentleness had calmed her, "'it now comes to this, that things cannot, and shall not, go on as they are at present going on, and that there must be an end of this one way or another.' As the announcement was vague, though very peremptory, Little Dorrit returned, "'Let us talk about it.' "'Quite so, my dear,' assented Fanny, as she dried her eyes. "'Let us talk about it. I am rational again now, and you shall advise me. Will you advise me, my sweet child?' Even Amy smiled at this notion, but she said, "'I will, Fanny, as well as I can.' "'Thank you, dearest Amy,' returned Fanny, kissing her. "'You are my anchor.' Having embraced her anchor with great affection, Fanny took a bottle of sweet toilet water from the table, and called to her maid for a fine handkerchief. She then dismissed that attendant for the night, and went on to be advised, dabbing her eyes and forehead from time to time to cool them. "'My love,' Fanny began, "'our characters and points of view are sufficiently different—kiss me again, my darling—to make it very probable that I shall surprise you by what I am going to say.' What I am going to say, my dear, is that notwithstanding our property, we labour, socially speaking, under disadvantages. You don't quite understand what I mean, Amy?" "'I have no doubt I shall,' said Amy mildly, after a few words more. "'Well, my dear, what I mean is that we are, after all, newcomers into fashionable life.' "'I am sure, Fanny.' little Dorrit interposed in her zealous admiration. No one need find that out in you. "'Well, my dear child, perhaps not,' said Fanny, "'though it's most kind and most affectionate in you, you precious girl, to say so.' Here she dabbed her sister's forehead, and blew upon it a little. "'But you are,' resumed Fanny, "'as is well known, the dearest little thing that ever was. To resume, my child.' Pa is extremely gentlemanly and extremely well informed, but he is, in some trifling respects, a little different from other gentlemen of his fortune, partly on account of what he has gone through, poor dear, partly, I fancy, on account of its often running in his mind that other people are thinking about that while he is talking to them. Uncle, my love, is altogether unpresentable. Though a dear creature to whom I am tenderly attached, he is, socially speaking, shocking. Edward is frightfully expensive and dissipated, 
I don't mean that there is anything ungenteel in that itself, far from it, but I do mean that he doesn't do it well, and that he doesn't, if I may so express myself, get the money's worth in the sort of dissipated reputation that attaches to him. "'Poor Edward!' sighed little Dorrit, with the whole family history in the sigh. "'Yes, and poor you and me, too,' returned Fanny, rather sharply. "'Very true. Then, my dear, we have no mother.' and we have a Mrs. General. And I tell you again, darling, that Mrs. General, if I may reverse a common proverb, and adapt it to her, is a cat in gloves who will catch mice. That woman, I am quite sure and confident, will be our mother-in-law. I can hardly think that, Fanny. Fanny stopped her. Now don't argue with me about it, Amy, said she, because I know better. Feeling that she had been sharp again, she dabbed her sister's forehead again, and blew upon it again. "'To resume once more, my dear, it then becomes a question with me. I am proud and spirited, Amy, as you very well know, too much so, I dare say, whether I shall make up my mind to take it upon myself to carry the family through.' "'How?' asked her sister anxiously. "'I will not,' said Fanny, without answering the question, "'submit to be mother-in-lawed by Mrs. General.' and I will not submit to be, in any respect whatever, either patronised or tormented by Mrs. Myrtle." Little Dorrit laid her hand upon the hand that held the bottle of sweet water, with a still more anxious look. Fanny, quite punishing her own forehead with the vehement dabs she now began to give it, fitfully went on. "'That he has somehow or other, and how is of no consequence, attained a very good position, no one can deny that it is a very good connection, no one can deny. And as to the question of clever or not clever, I doubt very much whether a clever husband would be suitable to me. I cannot submit. I should not be able to defer to him enough." "'Oh, my dear Fanny!' expostulated little Dorrit, upon whom a kind of terror had been stealing, as she perceived what her sister meant. "'If you loved any one, all this feeling would change.' If you loved any one, you would no more be yourself, but you would quite lose and forget yourself in your devotion to him. If you loved him, Fanny—Fanny had stopped the dabbing hand, and was looking at her fixedly. "'Oh, indeed!' cried Fanny. "'Really? Bless me! How much some people know of some subjects! They say every one has a subject, and I certainly seem to have hit upon yours, Amy. There, you little thing!' I was only in fun," dabbing her sister's forehead. "'But don't you be a silly puss! And don't you think flightily and eloquently about degenerate impossibilities? There! Now I'll go back to myself." "'Dear Fanny, let me say first that I would far rather we worked for a scanty living again than I would see you rich and married to Mr. Sparkler.' "'Let you say, my dear,' retorted Fanny, "'why, of course, I will let you say anything. There is no constraint upon you, I hope. We are together to talk it over. And as to marrying Mr. Sparkler, I have not the slightest intention of doing so to-night, my dear, or to-morrow morning either. But at some time? At no time for anything I know at present," answered Fanny with indifference. Then, suddenly changing her indifference into a burning restlessness, she added, "'You talk about the clever men. You little thing! It's all very fine and easy to talk about the clever men. But where are they? 
I don't see them anywhere near me.' "'My dear Fanny, so short a time, short time or long time,' interrupted Fanny, "'I am impatient of our situation. I don't like our situation, and very little would induce me to change it. Other girls, differently reared and differently circumstanced altogether, might wonder at what I say, or may do. Let them. They are driven by their lives and characters, and I am driven by mine. Fanny, my dear Fanny, you know that you have qualities to make you the wife of one very superior to Mr. Sparkler. Amy, my dear Amy, retorted Fanny, parodying her words, I know that I wish to have a more defined and distinct position in which I can assert myself with greater effect against that insolent woman. Would you, therefore—forgive me asking, Fanny—therefore marry her son? Why, perhaps, said Fanny, with a triumphant smile, there may be many less promising ways of arriving at an end than that, my dear. That piece of insolence may think now that it would be a great success to get her son off upon me and shelve me, but perhaps she little thinks how I would retort upon her if I married her son. I would oppose her in everything, and compete with her. I would make it the business of my life." Fanny set down the bottle when she came to this, and walked about the room, always stopping and standing still while she spoke. "'One thing I could certainly do, my child. I could make her older. And I would.' This was followed by another walk. "'I would talk of her as an old woman. I would pretend to know, if I didn't, but I should from her son, all about her age. And she should hear me say, Amy, affectionately, quite dutifully, and affectionately, how well she looked considering her time of life.' I could make her seem older at once, by being myself so much younger. I may not be as handsome as she is. I am not a fair judge of that question, I suppose, but I know I am handsome enough to be a thorn in her side, and I would be. My dear sister, would you condemn yourself to an unhappy life for this? It wouldn't be an unhappy life, Amy. It would be the life I am fitted for. Whether by disposition, or whether by circumstances is no matter, I am better fitted for such a life than for almost any other." There was something of a desolate tone in those words, but, with a short, proud laugh, she took another walk, and after passing a great looking-glass, came to another stop. "'Figure! Figure, Amy! Well, the woman has a good figure. I will give her her due, and not deny it. But is it so far beyond all others, that it is altogether unapproachable? Upon my word, I am not so sure of it. Give some much younger woman the latitude as to dress that she has, being married, and we would see about that, my dear." Something in the thought that was agreeable and flattering brought her back to her seat in a gayer temper. She took her sister's hands in hers, and clapped all four hands above her head, as she looked in her sister's face, laughing. "'And the dancer, Amy, that she has quite forgotten! The dancer, who bore no sort of resemblance to me, and of whom I never remind her, oh, dear, no, should dance through her life, and dance in her way, to such a tune as would disturb her insolent placidity a little. Just a little, my dear.' 
Amy, just a little.' Meeting an earnest and imploring look in Amy's face, she brought the four hands down, and laid only one on Amy's lips. "'Now, don't argue with me, child,' she said in a sterner way, "'because it is of no use. I understand these subjects much better than you do. I have not nearly made up my mind, but it may be. Now we have talked this over comfortably, and we go to bed. You best and dearest little mouse, good-night.' With those words Fanny weighed her anchor, and, having taken so much advice, left off being advised for that occasion. Thenceforward Amy observed Mr. Sparkler's treatment by his enslaver, with new reasons for attaching importance to all that passed between them. There were times when Fanny appeared quite unable to endure his mental feebleness, and when she became so sharply impatient of it that she would all but dismiss him for good. There were other times when she got on much better with him, when he amused her, and when her sense of superiority seemed to counterbalance that opposite side of the scale. If Mr. Sparker had been other than the faithfulest and most submissive of swains, he was sufficiently hard-pressed to have fled from the scene of his trials, and have set at least the whole distance from Rome to London between himself and his enchantress. But he had no greater will of his own than a boat has, when it is towed by a steamship, and he followed his cruel mistress through rough and smooth, on equally strong compulsion. Mrs. Merdle, during these passages, said little to Fanny, but said more about her. She was, as it were, forced to look at her through her eyeglass, and in general conversation to allow commendations of her beauty to be wrung from her by its irresistible demands. The defiant character it assumed, when Fanny heard these extollings, as it generally happened that she did, was not expressive of concessions to the impartial bosom but the utmost revenge the bosom took was, to say audibly, "'A spoilt beauty, but with that face and shape, who could wonder?' It might have been about a month, or six weeks, after the night of the new advice, when Little Dorrit began to think she detected some new understanding between Mr. Sparkler and Fanny. Mr. Sparkler, as if in attendance to some compact, scarcely ever spoke without first looking towards Fanny for leave. That young lady was too discreet ever to look back again. But if Mr. Sparkler had permission to speak, she remained silent. If he had not, she herself spoke. Moreover, it became plain, whenever Henry Gowan attempted to perform the friendly office of drawing him out, that he was not to be drawn. And not only that, but Fanny would presently, without any pointed application in the world, chance to say something with such a sting in it that Gowan would draw back as if he had put his hand into a beehive. There was yet another circumstance, which went a long way to confirm Little Dorrit in her fears, though it was not a great circumstance in itself. Mr. Sparkler's demeanour towards herself changed. It became fraternal. Sometimes, when she was in the outer circle of assemblies, at their own residence, at Mrs. Merdle's, or elsewhere, she would find herself stealthily supported round the waist by Mr. Sparkler's arm. Mr. Sparkler never offered the slightest explanation of this attention, but merely smiled with an air of blundering, contented, good-natured proprietorship, which, in so heavy a gentleman, was ominously expressive. Little Dorrit was at home one day, thinking about Fanny with a heavy heart. They had a room at one end of their drawing-room suite, nearly all a regular bay window, projecting over the street, 
and commanding all the picturesque life and variety of the Corso, both up and down. At three or four o'clock in the afternoon, English time, the view from this window was very bright and peculiar, and Little Dorrit used to sit and muse here, much as he had been used to while away the time in her balcony at Venice. Seated thus one day, she was softly touched on the shoulder, and Fanny said, "'Well, Amy, dear,' and took her seat at her side. Their seat was a part of the window. When there was anything in the way of a procession going on, they used to have bright draperies hung out of the window, and used to kneel or sit on this seat, and look out at it, leaning on the brilliant colour. But there was no procession that day, and Little Dorrit was rather surprised by Fanny's being at home at that hour, as she was generally out on horseback then. "'Well, Amy,' said Fanny, "'what are you thinking of, little one?' "'I was thinking of you, Fanny.' "'No! What a coincidence! I declare here's someone else. You were not thinking of this someone else, too, were you, Amy?' Amy had been thinking of this someone else, too, for it was Mr. Sparkler. She did not say so, however, as she gave him her hand. Mr. Sparkler came and sat down on the other side of her, and she felt the fraternal railing coming behind her, and apparently stretch on to include Fanny. "'Well, my little sister,' said Fanny, with a sigh, "'I suppose you know what this means.' "'She's as beautiful as she's doted on,' stammered Mr. Sparkler, "'and there's no nonsense about her. It's arranged.' "'You needn't explain, Edmund.' said Fanny. "'No, my love,' said Mrs. Sparkler. "'In short, Pet,' proceeded Fanny, "'on the whole, we are engaged. We must tell Papa about it, either to-night or to-morrow, according to the opportunities. Then it's done, and very little more need be said.' "'My dear Fanny,' said Mr. Sparkler, with deference, "'I should like to say a word to Amy.' "'Well, well, say it for goodness' sake,' returned the young lady. "'I am convinced, my dear Amy,' said Mr. Sparkler, "'that if ever there was a gal next to your highly endowed and beautiful sister, "'who had no nonsense about her—' "'We all know about that, Edmund,' interposed Miss Fanny. "'Never mind that. Pray go on to something else besides our having no nonsense about us.' "'Yes, my love.' said Mr. Sparkler, "'and I assure you, Amy, that nothing can be a greater happiness to myself—myself, uh, uh, myself, uh, next to the happiness of being so highly honoured with the choice of a glorious girl who hasn't an atom of—' "'Pray, Edmund, pray,' interrupted Fanny, with a slight pat of her pretty foot upon the floor. "'My love, you're quite right,' said Mr. Sparkler. "'And I know I have a habit of it. "'What I wish to declare was that nothing can be a greater happiness to myself, "'myself next to the happiness of being united to preeminently the most glorious of girls, "'and to have the happiness of cultivating the affectionate acquaintance of Amy. "'I may not myself,' said Mr. Sparkler manfully, "'be up.' to the mark on some other subjects at a short notice, and I am aware of that, if you were to poll society, the general opinion would be that I am not. But, 
on the subject of Amy, I am up to the mark. Mr. Sparkler kissed her, in witness thereof. A knife and fork, and an apartment, proceeded Mr. Sparkler, growing, in comparison with his oratorical antecedents, quite diffuse, will ever be at Amy's disposal. My governor, I am sure, will always be proud to entertain one whom I so much esteem. And regarding my mother, said Mr. Sparkler, who is a remarkably fine woman, with— Edmund! Edmund! cried Miss Fanny as before. With submission, my soul, pleaded Mr. Sparkler, I know I have a habit of it, and I thank you very much, my adorable girl, for taking the trouble to correct it. But my mother is admitted, on all sides, to be a remarkably fine woman, and she really hasn't any. That may be, or may not be, returned Fanny, but pray don't mention it any more. I will not, my love, said Mr. Sparkler. Then, in fact, you've nothing more to say, Edmund, have you? inquired Fanny. So far from it, my adorable girl, answered Mr. Sparkler, I apologise for having said so much. Mr. Sparkler perceived, by a kind of inspiration, that the question implied, had he not better go? He therefore withdrew the fraternal railing, and neatly said that he thought he would, with submission, take his leave. He did not go without being congratulated by Amy, as well as she could discharge that office in the flutter and distress of her spirits. When he was gone, she said, "'Oh, Fanny! Fanny!' and turned to her sister in the bright window, and fell upon her bosom and cried there. Fanny laughed at first but soon laid her face against her sister's, and cried too, a little. It was the last time Fanny ever showed that there was any hidden, suppressed, or conquered feeling in her on the matter. From that hour the way she had chosen lay before her, and she trod it with her own imperious, self-willed step. End of Book Two, Chapter Fourteen Book Two, Chapter Fifteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches, Chapter Fifteen. No just cause or impediment why these two persons should not be joined together. Mr. Dorrit on being informed by his elder daughter that she had accepted matrimonial overtures from Mr. Sparkler, to whom she had plighted her troth, received the communication at once with great dignity, and with a large display of parental pride. His dignity, dilating with the widened prospect of advantageous ground from which to make acquaintances, and his parental pride being developed by Miss Fanny's ready sympathy with that great object of his existence. He gave her to understand that her noble ambition found harmonious echoes in his heart, and bestowed his blessing on her, as a child brimful of duty and good principle, self-devoted to the aggrandizement of the family name. To Mr. Sparkler, 
when Miss Fanny permitted him to appear, Mr. Dorrit said he would not disguise that the alliance Mr. Sparkler did him the honour to propose was highly congenial to his feelings, both as being in unison with the spontaneous affections of his daughter Fanny, and as opening a family connection of a gratifying nature with Mr. Myrtle, the master spirit of the age. Mrs. Myrtle also, as a leading lady, rich in distinction, elegance, grace, and beauty, he mentioned in very laudatory terms. He felt it his duty to remark, he was sure a gentleman of Mr. Sparkler's fine sense would interpret him with all delicacy, that he could not consider this proposal definitely determined on, until he should have had the privilege of holding some correspondence with Mr. Myrtle, and of ascertaining it to be so far accordant with the views of that eminent gentleman, as that his, Mr. Dorrit's, daughter would be received on that footing which her station in life, and her dowry, and expectations, warranted him in requiring that she should maintain in what he trusted he might be allowed, without the appearance of being mercenary, to call the eye of the great world. While saying this, which his character as a gentleman of some little station, and his character as a father, equally demanded of him, he would not be so diplomatic as to conceal that the proposal remained in hopeful abeyance, and under conditional acceptance, and that he thanked Mr. Sparkler for the compliment rendered to himself and to his family. He concluded with some further and more general observations on the ha-character of an independent gentleman, and the hum-character of a possibly too partial and admiring parent. To sum the whole up shortly, he received Mr. Sparkler's offer very much as he would have received three or four half-crowns from him in the days that were gone. Mr. Sparkler, finding himself stunned by the words thus heaped upon his inoffensive head, made a brief though pertinent rejoinder, the same being neither more nor less than that he had long perceived Miss Fanny to have no nonsense about her, and that he had no doubt of its being all right with his governor. At that point the object of his affections shut him up like a box, with a spring lid, and sent him away. Proceeding shortly afterwards to pay his respects to the bosom, Mr. Dorrit was received by it with great consideration. Mrs. Myrtle had heard of this affair from Edmund. She had been surprised at first, because she had not thought Edmund a marrying man. Society had not thought Edmund a marrying man. Still, of course, she had seen, as a woman, we women did instinctively see these things, Mr. Dorrit, that Edmund had been immensely captivated by Miss Dorrit and she had openly said that Mr. Dorrit had much to answer for in bringing so charming a girl abroad to turn the heads of his countrymen. "'Have I the honour to conclude, madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'that the direction which Mr. Sparkler's affections have taken is uh, approved of by you?' "'I assure you, Mr. Dorrit,' returned the lady, "'that personally I am charmed.' That was very gratifying to Mr. Dorrit. "'Personally,' repeated Mrs. Myrtle, "'charmed.' This casual repetition of the word personally moved Mr. Dorrit to express his hope that Mr. Myrtle's approval, too, would not be wanting. "'I cannot,' said Mrs. Myrtle, "'take upon myself to answer positively for Mr. Myrtle. "'Gentlemen, especially gentlemen who are what society calls capitalists, "'having their own ideas of these matters, 
but I should think, merely giving an opinion, Mr. Dorrit, I should think Mr. Merdle would be upon the whole—here she held a review of herself before adding at her leisure—quite charmed. At the mention of gentlemen whom society called capitalists, Mr. Dorrit had coughed, as if some internal demur were breaking out of him. Mrs. Merdle had observed it, and went on to take up the cue. "'Though, indeed, Mr. Dorrit, it is scarcely necessary for me to make that remark, except in the mere openness of saying what is uppermost to one whom I so highly regard, and with whom I hope I may have the pleasure of being brought into still more agreeable relations. For one cannot but see the great probability of your considering such things from Mr. Merdle's own point of view, except, indeed, that circumstances have made it Mr. Merdle's accidental fortune, or misfortune, to be engaged in business transactions, and that they, however vast, may a little cramp his horizons. I am a very child as to having any notion of business, said Mrs. Merdle, but I am afraid, Mr. Dorrit, it may have that tendency. This skilful seesaw of Mr. Dorrit and Mrs. Merdle, so that each of them sent the other up, and each of them sent the other down, and neither had the advantage, acted as a sedative on Mr. Dorrit's cough. He remarked, with his utmost politeness, that he must beg to protest against its being supposed, even by Mrs. Merdle, the accomplished and graceful, to which compliment she bent herself, that such enterprises as Mr. Merdle's, apart as they were from the puny undertakings of the rest of men, had any lower tendency than to enlarge and expand the genius in which they were conceived. "'You are generosity itself,' said Mrs. Merdle in return, smiling her best smile. "'Let us hope so. But I confess I am almost superstitious in my ideas about business.' Mr. Dorrit threw in another compliment here, to the effect that business, like the time which was precious in it, was made for slaves, and that it was not for Mrs. Merdle, who ruled all hearts at her supreme pleasure, to have anything to do with it. Mrs. Merdle laughed, and conveyed to Mr. Dorrit an idea that the bosom flushed, which was one of her best effects. "'I say so much.' she then explained, merely because Mr. Purdle has always taken the greatest interest in Edmund, and has always expressed the strongest desire to advance his prospects. Edmund's public position, I think you know, his private position rests solely with Mr. Purdle. In my foolish incapacity for business, I assure you I know no more. Mr. Dorrit again expressed, in his own way, the sentiment that business was below the ken of enslavers and enchantresses. He then mentioned his intention, as a gentleman and a parent, of writing to Mr. Merdle. Mrs. Merdle concurred with all her heart, or with all her art, which was exactly the same thing, and herself dispatched a preparatory letter by the next post to the eighth wonder of the world. In his epistolary communication, as in his dialogues and discourses on the great question to which it related, Mr. Dorrit surrounded the subject with flourishes, as writing-masters embellish copy-books and ciphering-books, where the titles of the elementary rules of arithmetic diverge into swans, eagles, griffins, and other calligraphic recreations, and where the capital letters go out of their minds, and bodies into ecstasies of pen and ink. Nevertheless, he did render the purport of his letter sufficiently clear, 
to enable Mr. Myrtle to make a decent pretence of having learnt it from that source. Mr. Myrtle replied to it accordingly. Mr. Dorrit replied to Mr. Myrtle. Mr. Myrtle replied to Mr. Dorrit. And it was soon announced that the corresponding powers had come to a satisfactory understanding. Now, and not before, Miss Fanny burst upon the scene, completely arrayed for her new part. Now, and not before, she wholly absorbed Mr. Sparkler in her light, and shone for both, and twenty more. No longer feeling that want of a defined place and character which had caused her so much trouble, this fair ship began to steer steadily on a shaped course, and to swim with a weight and balance that developed her sailing qualities. The preliminaries, being so satisfactorily arranged, I think I will now, my dear, said Mr. Dorrit, announce her formally to Mrs. General. Papa, returned Fanny, taking him up short upon that name, I don't see what Mrs. General has got to do with it. My dear, said Mr. Dorrit, it will be an act of courtesy to hmm, a lady well-bred and refined. Oh, I am sick of Mrs. General's good breeding and refinement, papa, said Fanny. I am tired of Mrs. General. Tired? repeated Mr. Dorrit in reproachful astonishment. Of her, Mrs. General? Quite disgusted with her, papa, said Fanny. I really don't see what she has to do with my marriage. Let her keep to her own matrimonial projects, if he has any. "'Fanny,' returned Mr. Dorrit, with a grave and weighty slowness upon him, contrasting strongly with his daughter's levity, "'I beg the favour of your explaining uh, what it is you mean.' "'I mean, papa,' said Fanny, "'that if Mrs. General should happen to have any matrimonial projects of her own, I dare say they are quite enough to occupy her spare time, and that if she has not, so much the better.' but still I don't wish to have the honour of making announcements to her. "'Permit me to ask you, Fanny,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'why not?' "'Because she can find my engagement out for herself, papa,' retorted Fanny. "'She is watchful enough, I dare say. I think I have seen her so. Let her find it out for herself. If she should not find it out for herself, she will know it when I am married.' and i hope you will not consider me wanting in affection for you papa if i say it strikes me that will be quite enough for mrs general fanny returned mr dorrit i am amazed i am displeased by this hmm, this capricious and unintelligible display of animosity towards uh, mrs general do not if you please papa urged fanny call it animosity, because I assure you I do not consider Mrs. General worth my animosity." At this Mr. Dorrit rose from his chair with a fixed look of severe reproof, and remained standing in his dignity before his daughter. His daughter turned the bracelet on her arm, and now looking at him, and now looking from him, said, "'Very well, papa. I am truly sorry if you don't like it, but I can't help it. I am not a child and I am not Amy, and I must speak." "'Fanny,' gasped Mr. Dorrit, after a majestic silence, "'if I request you to remain here, 
while I formally announced to Mrs. General, as an exemplary lady, who is, hmm, a trusted member of this family, the, ah, the change that is contemplated among us, if I, ah, not only request it, but, hmm, insist upon it. Oh, papa! Fanny broke in, with pointed significance. If you make so much of it as that, I have in duty nothing to do but comply. I hope I may have my thoughts upon the subject, however, for I really cannot help it under the circumstances." So Fanny sat down with a meekness which, in the junction of extremes, became defiance, and her father, either not deigning to answer, or not knowing what to answer, summoned Mr. Tinkler into his presence. "'Mrs. General!' Mr. Tinkler, unused to receive such short orders in connection with the fair varnisher, paused. Mr. Dorrit, seeing the whole marshalsea, and all its testimonials in the pause, instantly flew at him with, "'How dare you, sir! What do you mean?' "'I beg your pardon, sir,' pleaded Mr. Tinkler. "'I, I was wishful to know.' "'You wish to know nothing, sir,' cried Mr. Dorrit, highly flushed. "'Don't tell me you did. Ha! <laughs> You didn't. You are guilty of mockery, sir." "'I assure you, sir,' Mr. Tinkler began. "'Don't assure me,' said Mr. Dorrit. "'I will not be assured by a domestic. You are guilty of mockery. You shall leave me. Hmm? The whole establishment shall leave me. What are you waiting for?' "'Only for my orders, sir.' "'It's false,' said Mr. Dorrit. "'You have your orders. Ha! Hum! My compliments to Mrs. General, and I beg the favour of her coming to me, if quite convenient, for a few minutes. Those are your orders.' In his execution of this mission, Mr. Tinkler perhaps expressed that Mr. Dorrit was in a raging fume. However that was, Mrs. General's skirts were very speedily heard outside, coming along, one might almost have said, bouncing along, with unusual expedition. Albeit, they settled down at the door, and swept into the room with their customary coolness. "'Mrs. General,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'take a chair.' Mrs. General, with a graceful curve of acknowledgment, descended into the chair which Mr. Dorrit offered. "'Madam,' pursued that gentleman, as you have had the kindness to undertake the um, formation of my daughters, and as I am persuaded that nothing nearly affecting them can uh, be indifferent to you, wholly impossible, said Mrs. General, in the calmest of ways, I therefore wish to announce to you, madam, that my daughter now present— Mrs. General made a slight inclination of her head to Fanny, who made a very low inclination of her head to Mrs. General, and came loftily upright again. "'That my daughter Fanny is, ah, contracted to be married to Mr. Sparkler, with whom you are acquainted. Hence, madam, you will be relieved of half your difficult charge, ah, difficult charge,' Mr. Dorrit repeated it with his angry eye on Fanny but not i hope to the hmm, diminution of any other portion direct or indirect of the footing you have at present the kindness to occupy in my family mr dorrit 
returned Mrs. General, with her gloved hands resting on one another, in exemplary repose, "'is ever considerate, and ever but too appreciative of my friendly services.' Miss Fanny coughed, as much as to say, "'You are right.' "'Miss Dorrit has no doubt exercised the soundest discretion, of which the circumstances admitted, and I trust will allow me to offer her my sincere congratulations. When free from the trammels of passion—' Mrs. General closed her eyes at the word, as if she could not utter it, and see anybody. When occurring with the approbation of near relatives, and when cementing the proud structure of a family edifice, these are usually auspicious events. I trust Miss Dorrit will allow me to offer her my best congratulations." Here Mrs. General stopped, and added internally, for the setting of her face, Papa, potatoes, poultry, prunes, and prism. "'Mr. Dorrit,' she superadded aloud, "'is ever most obliging, and for the attention, and I will add distinction, of having this confidence imparted to me by himself and Miss Dorrit, at this early time, I beg to offer the tribute of my thanks. My thanks and my congratulations are equally the meed of Mr. Dorrit and of Miss Dorrit." "'To me,' observed Miss Fanny, "'they are excessively gratifying, inexpressibly so. The relief of finding that you have no objection to make, Mrs. General, quite takes a load off my mind, I am sure. I hardly know what I should have done.' said Fanny, if you had interposed any objection, Mrs. General." Mrs. General changed her gloves, as to the right glove being uppermost, and the left undermost, with a prunes and prism smile. "'To preserve your approbation, Mrs. General,' said Fanny, returning the smile with one in which there was no trace of those ingredients, "'will, of course, be the highest object of my married life. To lose it would, of course, be perfect wretchedness.' I am sure your great kindness will not object, and I hope papa will not object, to my correcting a small mistake you have made, however. The best of us are so liable to mistakes, that even you, Mrs. General, have fallen into a little error. The attention and distinction you have so impressively mentioned, Mrs. General, as attaching to this confidence, are, I have no doubt, of the most complimentary and gratifying description, but they don't at all proceed from me. The merit of having consulted you on the subject would have been so great in me, that I feel I must not lay claim to it when it really is not mine. It is wholly papa's. I am deeply obliged to you for your encouragement and patronage, but it was papa who asked for it. I have to thank you, Mrs. General, for relieving my breast of a great weight, by so handsomely giving your consent to my engagement, but you have really nothing to thank me for. I hope you will always approve of my proceedings, after I have left home, and that my sister also may long remain the favoured object of your condescension, Mrs. General." With this address, which was delivered in her politest manner, Fanny left the room with an elegant and cheerful air, to tear upstairs with a flushed face as soon as she was out of hearing, pounce in upon her sister, call her a little dormouse, shake her for the better opening of her eyes, tell her what had passed below and ask her what she thought of Pa now. Towards Mrs. Myrtle, the young lady comported herself with great independence and self-possession, but not as yet with any more decided opening of hostilities. Occasionally they had a slight skirmish, as when Fanny considered herself patted on the back by that lady, or as when Mrs. Myrtle looked particularly young and well. But Mrs. Myrtle always soon terminated those passages of arms, by sinking among her cushions with the gracefulest indifference, and finding her attention otherwise engaged. 
Society, for that mysterious creature sat upon the seven hills too, found Miss Fanny vastly improved by her engagement. She was much more accessible, much more free and engaging, much less exacting, insomuch that she now entertained a host of followers and admirers, to the bitter indignation of ladies with daughters to marry, who were to be regarded as having revolted from society on the Miss Dorrit grievance, and erected a rebellious standard, enjoying the flutter she caused. Miss Dorrit not only haughtily moved through it in her own proper person, but haughtily, even ostentatiously, led Mr. Sparkler through it too, seeming to say to them all, "'If I think proper to march among you, in triumphal procession, attended by this weak captive in bonds, rather than a stronger one, that is my business. Enough that I choose to do it.' Mr. Sparkler, for his part, questioned nothing, but went wherever he was taken, did whatever he was told, felt that for his bride-elect to be distinguished was for him to be distinguished on the easiest terms, and was truly grateful for being so openly acknowledged. The winter passing on towards the spring, while this condition of affairs prevailed, it became necessary for Mr. Sparkler to repair to England, and take his appointed part in the expression and direction of its genius, learning, commerce, spirit, and sense. The land of Shakespeare, Milton, Bacon, Newton, Watt, the land of a host of past and present abstract philosophers, natural philosophers, and subduers of nature and art in their myriad forms, called to Mr. Sparkler to come and take care of it, lest it should perish. Mr. Sparkler, unable to resist the agonised cry from the depths of his country's soul, declared that he must go. It followed that the question was rendered pressing when, where, and how Mr. Sparkler should be married to the foremost girl in all this world with no nonsense about her. Its solution, after some little mystery and secrecy, Miss Fanny herself announced to her sister. "'Now, my child,' said she, seeking her out one day, "'I am going to tell you something. It is only this moment broached, and naturally I hurry to you the moment it is broached. Your marriage, Fanny. My precious child,' said Fanny, "'don't anticipate me. Let me impart my confidence to you, you flurried little thing, in my own way. As do you guess, if I answered it literally, I should answer no, for really it is not my marriage that is in question, half as much as it is Edmund's.' Little Dorrit looked, and perhaps not altogether without cause, somewhat at a loss to understand this fine distinction. "'I am in no difficulty,' exclaimed Fanny, "'and in no hurry. I am not wanted at any public office, or to give any vote anywhere else. But Edmund is. And Edmund is deeply dejected at the idea of going away by himself, and indeed I don't like that he should be trusted by himself. For—' If it's possible, and it generally is, to do a foolish thing, he is sure to do it." As she concluded this impartial summary of the reliance that might be safely placed upon her future husband, she took off, with an air of business, the bonnet she wore, and dangled it by its strings upon the ground. "'It is far more Edmund's question, therefore, than mine. However, we need say no more about that. That is self-evident on the face of it. Well, my dearest Amy, the point arising, is he to go by himself, or is he not to go by himself? This other point arises, are we to be married here and shortly, or are we to be married at home months hence? I see I am going to lose you, Fanny. What a little thing you are! 
cried Fanny, half tolerant and half impatient, for anticipating one. Pray, my darling, hear me out. That woman—she spoke of Mrs. Myrtle, of course—remains here until after Easter. So, in the case of my being married here and going to London with Edmund, I should have the start of her. That is something. Further, Amy, that woman being out of the way, I don't know that I greatly object to Mr. Myrtle's proposal to Pa that Edmund and I should take up our abode in that house, you know, where you once went with a dancer, my dear, until our own house can be chosen and fitted up. Further still, Amy, Papa, having always intended to go to town himself in the spring, you see, if Edmund and I were married here, we might go off to Florence, where Papa might join us, and we might all three travel home together. Mr. Myrtle has entreated Pa to stay with him in that same mansion I have mentioned, and I suppose he will. But he is master of his own actions, and upon that point, which is not at all material, I can't speak positively. The difference between Papa's being master of his own actions, and Mr. Sparkler's being nothing of the sort, was forcibly expressed by Fanny in her manner of stating the case. Not that her sister noticed it, for she was divided between regret at the coming separation, and a lingering wish that she had been included in the plans for visiting England. "'And these are the arrangements, Fanny, dear?' "'Arrangements?' repeated Fanny. "'Now, really, child, you are a little trying. You know I particularly guarded myself against laying my words open to any such construction. What I said was, that certain questions present themselves, and these are the questions.' Little Dorrit's thoughtful eyes met hers, tenderly and quietly. "'Now, my own sweet girl,' said Fanny, weighing her bonnet by the strings with considerable impatience, "'it's no use staring. A little owl could stare. I look to you for advice, Amy. What do you advise me to do?' "'Do you think,' asked Little Dorrit persuasively, after short hesitation, "'do you think, Fanny, that if you were to put it off for a few months, it might be, considering all things, best?' "'No, little tortoise,' retorted Fanny, with exceeding sharpness, "'I don't think anything of the kind.' Here she threw her bonnet from her altogether, and flounced into a chair. But, becoming affectionate almost immediately, she flounced out of it again, and kneeled down on the floor to take her sister, chair and all, in her arms. "'Don't suppose I'm hasty or unkind, darling, because I really am not. But you are such a little oddity.' You make one bite your head off when one wants to be soothing beyond everything. Didn't I tell you, you dearest baby, that Edmund can't be trusted by himself? Don't you know that he can't? Yes, yes, Fanny. You said so, I know. And you know it, I know, retorted Fanny. Well, my precious child, if he is not to be trusted by himself, it follows, I suppose, that I should go with him. It seems so, love said Little Dorrit. "'Therefore, having heard the arrangements that are feasible to carry out that object, am I to understand, dearest Amy, that on the whole you advise me to make them?' "'It seems so, love,' said Little Dorrit again. "'Very well,' cried Fanny, with an air of resignation. "'Then I suppose it must be done. I came to you, my sweet, the moment I saw the doubt and the necessity of deciding. I have now decided. So let it be.' After yielding herself up, in this patterned manner, to sisterly advice and the force of circumstances, Fanny became quite benignant, 
as one who had laid her own inclinations at the feet of her dearest friend, and felt a glow of conscience in having made the sacrifice. "'After all, my Amy,' she said to her sister, "'you are the best of small creatures, and full of good sense, and I don't know what I shall ever do without you.' With which words she folded her in a closer embrace, and a really fond one. "'Not that I contemplate doing without you, Amy, by any means, for I hope we shall ever be next to inseparable. And now, my pet, I am going to give you a word of advice. When you are left alone here with Mrs. General—'I am to be left alone here with Mrs. General,' said Little Dorrit, quietly. "'Why, of course, my precious, till papa comes back. Unless you call Edward company, which he certainly is not, even when he is here.' and still more certainly is not when he is away at naples or in sicily i was going to say but you are such a beloved little marplot for putting one out when you are left alone here with mrs general amy don't you let her slide into any sort of artful understanding with you that she is looking after pa or that pa is looking after her she will as she can i know her sly manner of feeling her way with those gloves of hers but don't you comprehend her on any account and if pa should tell you when he comes back that he has it in contemplation to make mrs general your mamma which is not the less likely because i am going away my advice to you is that you say at once papa i beg to object most strongly fanny cautioned me about this and she objected and i object i don't mean to say that any objection from you amy is likely to be of the smallest effect or that i think you likely to make it with any degree of firmness but there is a principle involved, a filial principle, and I implore you not to submit to be mother-in-lawed by Mrs. General, without asserting it in making every one about you as uncomfortable as possible. I don't expect you to stand by it, indeed, I know you won't, Pa being concerned, but I wish to rouse you to a sense of duty, as to any help from me, or as to any opposition that I can offer to such a match. You shall not be left in the lurch, my love." whatever weight i may derive from my position as a married girl not wholly devoid of attractions used as that position always shall be to oppose that woman i will bring to bear you may depend upon it on the head and false hair for i am confident it is not all real ugly as it is and unlikely as it appears that any one in their senses would go to the expense of buying it of mrs general little dorrit received this counsel without venturing to oppose it but without giving Fanny any reason to believe that she intended to act upon it. Having now, as it were, formally wound up her single life, and arranged her worldly affairs, Fanny proceeded with characteristic ardour to prepare for the serious change in her condition. The preparation consisted in the dispatch of her maid to Paris, under the protection of the courier, for the purchase of that outfit for a bride on which it would be extremely low, in the present narrative, to bestow an English name but to which, on a vulgar principle, it observes, of adhering to the language in which it professes to be written, it declines to give a French one. The rich and beautiful wardrobe, purchased by these agents, in the course of a few weeks, made its way through the intervening country, bristling with custom-houses, garrisoned by an immense army of shabby mendicants in uniform, who incessantly repeated the beggar's petition over it, as if every individual warrior among them were the ancient Belisarius and of whom there were so many legions that unless the courier had expended just one bushel and a half of silver money relieving their distresses they would have worn the wardrobe out before it got to rome 
by turning it over and over. Through all such dangers, however, it was triumphantly brought, inch by inch, and arrived at its journey-end in fine condition. There it was exhibited to select companies of female viewers, in whose gentle bosoms it awakened implacable feelings. Concurrently, active preparations were made for the day on which some of its treasures were to be publicly displayed. Cards of breakfast invitation were sent out to half the English in the city of Romulus. The other half made arrangements to be under arms, as criticising volunteers, at various outer points of the solemnity. The most high and illustrious English Signor Edgardo Dorrit came post through the deep mud and ruts, from forming a surface under the improving Neapolitan nobility, to grace the occasion. The best hotel, and all its culinary myrmidons, were sent to work to prepare the feast. The draughts of Mr. Dorrit almost constituted a run on the Tolonia bank. The British consul hadn't had such a marriage in the whole of its consularity. The day came, and the she-wolf in the capital might have snarled with envy to see how the island savages contrived these things nowadays. The murderous-headed statues of the wicked emperors of the soldiery, whom sculptors had not been able to flatter out of their villainous hideousness, might have come off their pedestals to run away with the bride. The choked old fountain, where erst the gladiators washed, might have leaped into life again to honour the ceremony. The temple of Vesta might have sprung up anew from its ruins, expressly to lend its countenance to the occasion. Might have done, but did not. Like sentient things, even like the lords and ladies of creation sometimes, might have done much, but did nothing. The celebration went off with admirable pomp. Monks in black robes, white robes, and russet robes stopped to look after the carriages, wandering peasants and fleeces of sheep begged and piped under the house-windows. The English volunteers defiled. The day wore on to the hour of vespers. The festival wore away. The thousand churches rang their bells without any reference to it, and St. Peter denied they had anything to do with it. But by that time the bride was near the end of the first day's journey towards Florence. It was the peculiarity of the nuptials that they were all bride. Nobody noticed the bridegroom. Nobody noticed the first bridesmaid. Few could have seen little Dorrit, who held that post, for the glare, even supposing many to have sought her. So the bride had mounted into her handsome chariot, incidentally accompanied by the bridegroom, and after rolling for a few minutes smoothly over a fair pavement, had begun to jolt through a slough of despond, and through a long, long avenue of rack and ruin. Other nuptial carriages are said to have gone the same road, before and since. If little Dorrit found herself left a little lonely, and a little low that night, nothing would have done so much against her feeling of depression as the being able to sit at work by her father, as in the old time, and help him to his supper and his rest. But that was not to be thought of now, when they sat in the state equipage with Mrs. General on the coach-box. And as to supper, if Mr. Dorrit had wanted supper, there was an Italian cook, and there was a Swiss confectioner, who must have put on caps as high as the Pope's mitre, and have performed the mysteries of alchemists in a copper-saucepanned laboratory below, before he could have got it. He was sententious and didactic that night. If he had been simply loving, he would have done Little Dorrit more good. But she accepted him as he was. When had she not accepted him as he was, and made the most and best of him? Mrs. General at length retired. Her retirement for the night was always her frostiest ceremony, 
as if she felt it necessary that the human imagination should be chilled into stone to prevent its following her. When she had gone through her rigid preliminaries, amounting to a sort of genteel platoon exercise, she withdrew. Little Dorrit then put her arm round her father's neck, to bid him good-night. "'Amy, my dear,' said Mr. Dorrit, taking her by the hand, "'this is the close of a day that has, ah, greatly impressed and gratified me.' "'A little tired, you dear, too.' "'No.' said Mr. Dorrit. No, I am not sensible of fatigue when it arises from an occasion so, hmm, replete with gratification of the purest kind. Little Dorrit was glad to find him in such heart, and smiled from her own heart. My dear, he continued, this is an occasion, ah, teeming with a good example. With a good example, my favourite and attached child, hm? To you. Little Dorrit, fluttered by his words, did not know what to say, though he stopped as if he expected her to say something. Amy, he resumed, your dear sister, our Fanny, has contracted, ah, hm, a marriage eminently calculated to extend the basis of our connection and to hmm, consolidate our social relations my love i trust that the time is not far distant when some ah, eligible partner may be found for you oh no let me stay with you i beg and pray that i may stay with you i want nothing but to stay and take care of you she said it like one in sudden alarm nay amy amy said mr dorrit this is weak and foolish weak and foolish you have a responsibility imposed upon you by your position it is to develop that position and be hmm, worthy of that position as to taking care of me i can ha, take care of myself or he added after a moment if i should need to be taken care of i hmm, can with the ah, blessings of providence be taken care of i ah, hmm, i cannot my dear child think of engrossing and ah, as it were sacrificing you oh what a time of day at which to begin that profession of self-denial at which to make it with an air of taking credit for it at which to believe it if such a thing could be don't speak amy i positively say i cannot do it i ha uh, must not do it my mm, conscience would not allow it i therefore my love take the opportunity afforded by this gratifying and impressive occasion of ha uh, solemnly remarking that it is now a cherished wish and purpose of mine to see you ah uh, eligibly i repeat eligibly married oh no dear pray amy said mr dorrit i am well persuaded that if the topic were referred to any person of superior social knowledge of superior delicacy and sense let us say for instance to ah uh, mrs general that there would not be two opinions as to the mm, affectionate character and propriety of my sentiments 
but as i know your loving and dutiful nature from from experience i am quite satisfied that it is necessary to say no more i have no husband to propose at present my dear i have not even one in view i merely wish that we should ah understand each other good night my dear and sole remaining daughter good night god bless you if the thought ever entered little dorrit's head that night that he could give her up lightly now in his prosperity and when he had it in his mind to replace her with a second wife she drove it away faithful to him still as in the worst times through which she had borne him single-handed she drove the thought away and entertained no harder reflection in her tearful unrest than that he now saw everything through their wealth and through the care he always had upon him that they should continue rich and grow richer they sat in their equipage of state with mrs general on the box for three weeks longer and then he started for Florence to join Fanny. Little Dorrit would have been glad to bear him company so far, only for the sake of her own love, and then to have turned back alone, thinking of dear England. But, though the courier had gone on with the bride, the valet was next in the line, and the succession would not have to come to her as long as any one could be got for money. Mrs. General took life easily, as easily, that is, as she could take anything, when the Roman establishment remained in their sole occupation, and Little Dorrit would often ride out in a hired carriage that was left them, and alight alone, and wander among the ruins of old Rome. The ruins of the vast old amphitheatre, of the temples, of the old commemorative arches, of the old trodden highways, of the old tombs, besides being what they were, to her were ruins of the old marshalsea, ruins of her own old life ruins of the faces and forms that of old peopled it, ruins of its loves, hopes, cares, and joys. Two ruined spheres of action and suffering were before the solitary girl, often sitting on some broken fragment, and in the lonely places, under the blue sky, she saw them both together. Up then would come Mrs. General, taking all the colour out of everything, as nature and art had taken it out of herself, writing prunes and prism, in Mr. Eustace's text, whatever she could lay a hand, looking everywhere for Mr. Eustace and company, and seeing nothing else, scratching up the driest little bones of antiquity, and bolting them whole without any human visitings, like a ghoul in gloves. End of Book Two, Chapter Fifteen Book Two, Chapter Sixteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Sixteen, Getting On. The newly married pair, on their arrival in Harley Street, Cavendish Square, London, were received by the chief butler. That great man was not interested in them, but on the whole endured them. People must continue to be married and given in marriage, or chief butlers would not be wanted. As nations are made to be taxed, so families are made to be butlered. The chief butler, no doubt, reflected that the course of nature required the wealthy population to be kept up 
on his account. He therefore condescended to look at the carriage from the hall-door without frowning at it, and said, in a very handsome way, to one of his men, "'Thomas, help with the luggage.' He even escorted the bride upstairs into Mr. Merdle's presence, but this must be considered as an act of homage to the sex, of which he was an admirer, being notoriously captivated by the charms of a certain duchess, and not as a committal of himself with the family. Mr. Merdle was slinking about the hearth-rug, waiting to welcome Mrs. Sparkler. His hand seemed to retreat up his sleeve as he advanced to do so, and it gave her such a superfluity of coat-cuff that it was like being received by the popular conception of Guy Fawkes. When he put his lips to hers, besides, he took himself into custody by the wrists, and backed himself among the ottomans and chairs and tables, as if he were his own police-officer, saying to himself, "'Now none of that. Come, I've got you, you know, and you go quietly along with me.' Mrs. Sparkler, installed in the rooms of state, the innermost sanctuary of down, silk, chintz, and fine linen, felt that so far her triumph was good, and her way made step by step. On the day before her marriage she had bestowed upon Mrs. Merdle's maid, with an air of gracious indifference, in Mrs. Merdle's presence, a trifling little keepsake, bracelet, bonnet, and two dresses, all new, about four times as valuable as the present formerly made by Mrs. Merdle to her. She was now established in Mrs. Merdle's own rooms, to which some extra touches had been given to render them more worthy of her occupation. In her mind's eye, as she lounged there, surrounded by every luxurious accessory that wealth could obtain or invention devise, she saw the fair bosom that beat in unison with the exultation of her thoughts, competing with the bosom that had been famous so long, outshining it and deposing it. Happy? Fanny must have been happy, no more wishing oneself dead now. The courier had not approved of Mr. Dorrit's staying in the house of a friend and had preferred to take him to an hotel in brook street grosvenor square mr merdle ordered his carriage to be ready early in the morning that he might wait upon mr dorrit immediately after breakfast bright the carriage looked sleek the horses looked gleaming the harness looked luscious and lasting the liveries looked a rich responsible turnout an equipage for a merdle early people looked after it as it rattled along the streets and said with awe in their breath there he goes. There he went, until Brook Street stopped him. Then, forth from its magnificent case came the jewel, not lustrous in itself, but quite the contrary. Commotion in the office of the hotel. Myrtle. The landlord, though a gentleman of a haughty spirit who had just driven a pair of thoroughbred horses into town, turned out to show him upstairs. The clerks and servants cut him off by back passages, and were found accidentally hovering in doorways and angles, that they might look upon him, Myrtle. O oh, ye sun, moon, and stars, the great man! The rich man, who had, in a manner, revised the New Testament, and already entered into the kingdom of heaven. The man who could have any one he chose to dine with him, and who had made the money. As he went up the stairs, people were already posted on the lower stairs, that his shadow might fall upon them when he came down. So were the sick brought out, and laid in the track of the Apostle, who had not got into the good society, and had not made the money. Mr. Dorrit, dressing-gowned and newspapered, was at his breakfast. The courier, with agitation in his voice, announced, "'Miss Maredale!' 
Mr. Dorrit's overwrought heart bounded as he leapt up. "'Mr. Myrtle, this is, ah, indeed an honour. Permit me to express the mm, sense, the high sense I entertain of this, ah, mm, highly gratifying act of attention.' i am well aware sir of the many demands upon your time and its ah, enormous value mr dorrit could not say enormous roundly enough for his own satisfaction that you should ha ah, at this early hour bestow any of your priceless time upon me is a ah, ah, compliment that i acknowledge with the greatest esteem Mr. Dorrit positively trembled in addressing the great man. Mr. Myrtle uttered, in his subdued, inward, hesitating voice, a few sounds that were to no purpose whatever, and finally said, "'I am glad to see you, sir.' "'You are very kind,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'truly kind.' By this time the visitor was seated, and was passing his great hand over his exhausted forehead. "'You are well i hope mr myrtle i am as well as i yes i i am as well as i uh, usually am said mr myrtle your occupations must be immense tolerably so but uh, oh dear no there's there's not much the matter with me said mr myrtle looking round the room a little dyspeptic mr dorrit hinted Oh, very likely, but I—oh, I am well enough,' said Mr. Myrtle. There were black traces on his lips where they met, as if a little train of gunpowder had been fired there, and he looked like a man who, if his natural temperament had been quicker, would have been very feverish that morning. This, and his heavy way of passing his hand over his forehead, had prompted Mr. Dorrit's solicitous inquiries. "'Mrs. Myrtle?' Mr. Dorrit insinuatingly pursued, "'I left, as you will be prepared to hear, the ha, observed of all observers, the hmm, admired of all admirers, the leading fascination and charm of society in Rome. She was looking wonderfully well when I quitted it.' "'Mrs. Myrtle?' said Mr. Myrtle, is generally considered a very attractive woman, and she is, no doubt, I am sensible of her being so. "'Who can be otherwise?' responded Mr. Dorrit. Mr. Myrtle turned his tongue in his closed mouth. It seemed rather a stiff and unmanageable tongue, moistened his lips, passed his hand over his forehead again, and looked all round the room again, principally under the chairs. "'But—' he said, looking Mr. Dorrit in the face for the first time, and immediately afterwards dropping his eyes to the buttons of Mr. Dorrit's waistcoat. "'If we speak of attractions, your daughter ought to be the subject of our conversation. She is extremely beautiful, both in face and figure. She is quite uncommon. When the young people arrived last night, I was really surprised to see such charms.' Mr. Dorrit's gratification was such that he said, "Ha!" Ah, he could not refrain from telling Mr. Myrtle verbally, as he had already done by letter, what honour and happiness he felt in this union of their families, and he offered his hand. Mr. Myrtle looked at the hand for a little while, took it on his for a moment, as if his were a yellow salver or fish-slice, 
and then returned it to Mr. Dorrit. "'I thought I would drive around the first thing,' said Mr. Myrtle, "'to offer my services, in case I can do anything for you, and to say that I hope you will uh, at least do me the honour of dining with me to-day, and every day when you are not better engaged during your stay in town.' Mr. Dorrit was enraptured by these attentions. "'Do you stay long, sir?' "'I have not at present the intention,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'of her exceeding a fortnight. "'That's a very short stay, after so long a journey,' returned Mr. Myrtle. Hmm, "'Yes,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'but the truth is, ah, my dear Mr. Myrtle, "'that I find a foreign life so well suited to my health and taste "'that I, hmm, have but two objects in my present visit to london first the ah the distinguished happiness and ah privilege which i now enjoy and appreciate secondly the arrangement hmm, the laying out that is to say in the best way of uh, ah, hmm, my money well sir said mr myrtle after turning his tongue again if I can be of any use to you in that respect, you may command me." Mr. Dorrit's speech had had more hesitation in it than usual, as he approached the ticklish topic, for he was not perfectly clear how so exalted a potentate might take it. He had doubts whether reference to any individual capital or fortune might not seem a wretchedly retail affair to so wholesale a dealer. Greatly relieved by Mr. Myrtle's affable offer of assistance, he caught at it directly, and heaped acknowledgments upon him. "'I scarcely dared," said Mr. Dorrit. "'I assure you to hope for so vast an advantage as your direct advice and assistance, though, of course, I should, under any circumstances like the rest of the civilised world, have followed in Mr. Myrtle's train.' "'You know, we may almost say we are related, sir,' said Mr. Myrtle, curiously interested in the pattern of the carpet, "'and therefore you may consider me at your service.' "'Ah! Very handsome, indeed,' cried Mr. Dorrit. "'Ah! Most handsome!' "'It would not,' said Mr. Myrtle, "'be at the present moment easy for what I may call a mere outsider to come into any of the good things.' "'Of course, I speak of my own good things.' "'Of course, of course,' cried Mr. Dorrit, in a tone implying that there were no other good things. "'Unless at a high price, at what we are accustomed to term a very long figure.' Mr. Dorrit laughed in the buoyancy of his spirits. "'Ha, ha, 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 ha! Long figure! Good! Ha, ha, ha! Very expressive, to be sure!' However, said Mr. Myrtle. I do generally retain in my own hands the power of exercising some preference. People in general would be pleased to call it favour, as a sort of compliment for my care and trouble." "'And public spirit and genius,' Mr. Dorrit suggested. Mr. Myrtle, with a dry swallowing action, seemed to dispose of those qualities like a bolus, then added, as a sort of return for it, 
I will see, if you please, how I can exert this limited power, for people are jealous, and it is limited, to your advantage. You are very good, replied Mr. Dodd. You are very good. Of course, said Mr. Merdle. There must be the strictest integrity and uprightness in these transactions. There must be the purest faith between man and man. There must be unimpeached and unimpeachable confidence, or business could not be carried on. Mr. Dorrit hailed these generous sentiments with fervour. Therefore, said Mr. Merdle, I can only give you a preference to a certain extent. I perceive to a defined extent, observed Mr. Dorrit defined extent, and perfectly above board. As to my advice, however, said Mr. Merdle, that is another matter. That, uh, such as it is. Oh, such as it was! Mr. Dorrit could not bear the faintest appearance of its being depreciated, even by Mr. Merdle himself. That uh, there is nothing in the bonds of spotless honour between myself and my fellow-man to prevent my parting with, uh, if I choose. Uh, and that— said Mr. Merdle, now deeply intent upon a dust-cart that was passing the windows, shall be at your command, whenever you think proper. New acknowledgments from Mr. Dorrit, new passages of Mr. Merdle's hand over his forehead, calm and silence, contemplation of Mr. Dorrit's waistcoat-buttons by Mr. Merdle. "'My time being rather precious,' said Mr. Merdle, suddenly getting up, as if he had been waiting in the interval for his legs and they had just come, I must be moving towards the city. Can I take you anywhere, sir? I shall be happy to set you down or set you on. My carriage is at your disposal. Mr. Dorrit bethought himself that he had business at his banker's. His banker's was in the city. That was fortunate. Mr. Merdle would take him into the city. But surely he might not detain Mr. Merdle while he assumed his coat? Yes, he might and must. Mr. Merdle insisted on it. So Mr. Dorrit, retiring into the next room, put himself under the hands of his valet, and in five minutes came back glorious. Then said Mr. Merdle, "'Allow me, sir. Take my arm.' Then, leaning on Mr. Merdle's arm, did Mr. Dorrit descend the staircase, seeing the worshippers on the steps, and feeling that the light of Mr. Merdle shone by reflection in himself. Then the carriage, and the ride into the city, and the people who looked at them, the hats that flew off grey heads, and the general bowing and crouching before this wonderful mortal, the like of which prostration of spirit was not to be seen. No, by heaven, no! It may be worth thinking of by foreigners of all denominations, in Westminster Abbey, and St. Paul's Cathedral, put together, on any Sunday in the year. It was a rapturous dream to Mr. Dorrit, to find himself set aloft in this public car of triumph, making a magnificent progress to that befitting destination, the golden street of the Lombards. There Mr. Merdle insisted on lighting, and going his way afoot, and leaving his poor equipage at Mr. Dorrit's disposition. So the dream increased in rapture, when Mr. Dorrit came out of the bank alone, and people looked at him in default of Mr. Merdle and when, with the ears of his mind, he heard the frequent exclamation as he rolled glibly along, a wonderful man to be Mr. Merdle's friend. At dinner that day, although the occasion was not foreseen and provided for, a brilliant company of such as are not made of the dust of the earth, but of some superior article for the present unknown, shed their lustrous benediction upon Mr. Dorrit's daughter's marriage. 
and Mr. Dorrit's daughter that day began, in earnest, her competition with that woman not present, and began it so well that Mr. Dorrit could all but have taken his affidavit, if required, that Mrs. Sparkler had all her life been lying at full length in the lap of luxury, and had never heard of such a rough word in the English tongue as marshalsea. Next day, and the day after, and every day, all graced by more dinner company, cards descended on Mr. Dorrit like theatrical snow. As the friend and relative by marriage of the illustrious Myrtle, Bar, Bishop, Treasury, Chorus, everybody, wanted to make or improve Mr. Dorrit's acquaintance. In Mr. Myrtle's heap of offices in the city, when Mr. Dorrit appeared at any of them on his business, taking him eastward, which it frequently did, for it throve amazingly, the name of Dorrit was always a passport to the great presence of Myrtle. So the dream increased in rapture every hour, as Mr. Dorrit felt increasingly sensible that this connection had brought him forward indeed. Only one thing sat otherwise than auriferously, and at the same time lightly, on Mr. Dorrit's mind. It was the chief butler. That stupendous character looked at him, in the course of his official looking at the dinners, in a manner that Mr. Dorrit considered questionable. He looked at him, as he passed through the hall and up the staircase, going to dinner, with a glazed fixedness that Mr. Dorrit did not like. Seated at table in the act of drinking, Mr. Dorrit still saw him through his wine-glass, regarding him with a cold and ghostly eye. It misgave him that the chief butler must have known a collegian, and must have seen him in the college, perhaps had been presented to him. He looked as closely at the chief butler as such a man could be looked at and yet he did not recall that he had ever seen him elsewhere. Ultimately he was inclined to think that there was no reverence in the man, no sentiment in the great creature. But he was not relieved by that, for, let him think what he would, the chief butler had him in his supercilious eye, even when that eye was on the plate and other table garniture, and he never let him out of it. To hint to him that this confinement in his eye was disagreeable, or to ask him what he meant, was an act too daring to venture upon, his severity with his employers and their visitors being terrific, and he never permitting himself to be approached with the slightest liberty. End of Book Two, Chapter Sixteen Book Two Chapter Seventeen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Seventeen, Missing. The term of Mister Dorrit's visit was within two days of being out, and he was about to dress for another inspection by the chief butler, whose victims were always dressed expressly for him when one of the servants of the hotel presented himself bearing a card. Mr. Dorrit, taking it, read, "'Mrs. Finching.' The servant waited in speechless deference. "'Man, man,' said Mr. Dorrit, turning upon him with grievous indignation, "'explain your motive in bringing me this ridiculous name. I am wholly unacquainted with it. Finching, sir,' said Mr. Dorrit, perhaps avenging himself on the chief butler by substitute. "'Ha!' Huh? "'What do you mean by finching?' The man-man seemed to mean flinching as much as anything else, for he backed away from Mr. Dorrit's severe regard as he replied, "'A lady, sir.' 
"'I know no such lady, sir,' said Mr. Dorrit. "'Take this card away. I know no finching of either sex.' "'Ask your pardon, sir. The, the lady said she was aware she might be unknown by name. But she begged me to say, sir, that she had formerly the honour of being acquainted with Miss Dorrit. The, the lady said, sir, the youngest Miss Dorrit.' Mr. Dorrit knitted his brows, and rejoined, after a moment or two, "'Inform Mrs. Finching, sir,' emphasising the name as if the innocent man were solely responsible for it, "'that she can come up.' He had reflected, in his momentary pause, that unless she were admitted she might leave some message, or might say something below, having a disgraceful reference to that former state of existence. Hence the concession and hence the appearance of Flora, piloted in by the man-man. "'I have not the pleasure,' said Mr. Dorrit, standing with the card in his hand, and with an air which imported that it would scarcely have been a first-class pleasure if he had had it. "'Of knowing either this name or yourself, madam. Place a chair, sir.' The responsible man, with a start, obeyed, and went out on tiptoe. Flora, putting aside her veil with the bashful tremor upon her, proceeded to introduce herself. At the same time, a singular combination of perfumes was diffused through the room, as if some brandy had been put by mistake in a lavender-water bottle, or as if some lavender-water had been put by mistake in a brandy-bottle. "'I beg, Mr. Dorrit, to offer a thousand apologies, indeed. They would be far too few for such an obtrusion, which I know must appear extremely bold and lady alone, too. But I thought it best upon the whole, however difficult, and even apparently improper, though Mr. F.'s aunt would have willingly accompanied me, and as a carriage of great force and spirit, would probably have struck one possessed of such a knowledge of life as no doubt, for so many changes must have been acquired. For Mr. F. himself said frequently that although well educated in the neighbourhood of Blackheath, at as high as eighty guineas, which is a good deal for parents, and the plate kept going back to on going away, but that is more a meanness than it's value than he had learnt more in his first years, as a commercial traveller with a large commission on the sale of an article that nobody would hear of, much less buy, which preceded the wine-trade a long time in that, in the whole six years in that academy conducted by a college bachelor. But why a bachelor more clever than a married man, I do not see, and never did, but pray excuse me, that is not the point." Mr. Dorrit stood rooted to the carpet, a statue of mystification. "'I must openly admit that I have no pretensions.' said Flora. But having known the dear little thing, which under altered circumstances appears a liberty, but is not so intended, and goodness knows there was no favour in half a crown a day to such a needle as herself, but quite the other way, and as to anything lowering in it from it, the labourer is worthy of his hire, and I am sure I only wish he got it often and more animal food and less rheumatism in the back and legs, poor soul." "'Madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, recovering his breath by a great effort, as a relict of the late Mr. Finching stopped to take hers, "'Madam, said Mr. Dorrit, very red in the face. "'If I understand you to refer to her, to anything in the antecedents of hmm, a daughter of mine involving her hmm, daily compensation, madam, I beg to observe that the uh, fact, assuming it uh, to be fact, never was within my knowledge. Hmm, I should not have permitted it. Uh, never, never.' "'Unnecessary to pursue the subject.' returned Flora, and would not have mentioned it on any account except as supposing it a favourable only letter of introduction, but as to being fact, no doubt, or whatever, and you may set your mind at rest for the very dress I have on now can prove, and sweetly made, there is no denying that it would tell better on a better figure of my own is much too fat, though how to bring it down I know not. Pray excuse me, I am roving off again." 
Mr. Dorrit backed to his chair in a stony way, and seated himself, as Flora gave him a softening look, and played with her parasol. "'The dear little thing,' said Flora, "'having gone off perfectly limp and white and cold in my own house, or at least papa's, for though not a freehold still a long lease at a peppercorn in the morning, when Arthur, foolish habit of our youthful days, and Mr. Clennam, far more adapted to existing circumstances, particularly addressing stranger, and that stranger a gentleman in an elevated station, communicated the glad tidings imparted by a person of name of Panks, emboldens me.' At the mention of these two names, Mr. Dorrit frowned, stared, frowned again, hesitated with his fingers at his lips, as he had hesitated long ago, and said, "'Do me the favour to her. State your pleasure, madam.' "'Mr. Dorrit,' said Flora, "'you are very kind in giving me permission, and highly natural it seems to me that you should be kind, for though more stately I perceive a likeness filled out of course, but a likeness still, the object of my intruding is my own without the slightest consultation with any human being, and most decidedly not with Arthur, or oh, pray excuse me, Doyce and Clennam. I don't know what I am saying, Mr. Clennam, solus, for to put that individual linked by a golden chain to a purple time when all was ethereal out of any anxiety would be worth to me the ransom of a monarch, not that I have the least idea how much that would come to, but as using it as the total of all I have in the world and more.' Mr. Dorrit, without greatly regarding the earnestness of these latter words, repeated, "'State your pleasure, madam.' "'It's not likely, I well know,' said Flora. "'But it's possible, and being possible, when I had the gratification of reading in the papers, that you had arrived from Italy and were going back, I made up my mind to try it, for you to might come across him, or hear something of him, and if so, what a blessing and relief to all.' "'Allow me to ask, madam.' said Mr. Dorrit, with his ideas in wild confusion, "'To whom, ah, to whom,' he repeated it with a raised voice in mere desperation, "'you at present allude.' "'To the foreigner from Italy who disappeared in the city, as no doubt you have read in the papers equally with myself,' said Flora, "'not referring to private sources by the name of Panks, from which one gathers what dreadfully ill-natured things some people are wicked enough to whisper, most likely judging others by themselves, and what the uneasiness and indignation of Arthur, quite unable to overcome it, Doyce and Clennam, cannot fail to be.' It happened, fortunately, for the elucidation of any intelligible result, that Mr. Dorrit had heard or read nothing about the matter. This caused Mrs. Finching, with many apologies for being in great practical difficulties as to finding the way to her pocket among the stripes of her dress, at length to produce a police handbill, setting forth that a foreign gentleman of the name of Blandois, last from Venice, had unaccountably disappeared on such a night in such a part of the city of London, that he was known to have entered such a house at such an hour, that he was stated by the inmates of that house to have left it about so many minutes before midnight, and that he had never been beheld since. This, with exact particulars of time and locality, and with a good detailed description of the foreign gentleman who had so mysteriously vanished, Mr. Dorrit read at large. "'Blandois,' said Mr. Dorris, "'Venice. And this description. I know this gentleman. He has been in my house. He is intimately acquainted with a gentleman of good family, but in indifferent circumstances, of whom I am a hum, patron.' "'Then my humble and pressing entreaty is the more,' said Flora, "'that in travelling back you will have the kindness to look for this foreign gentleman along all the roads and up and down all the turnings, and to make inquiries for him at all the hotels and orange streets and vineyards and volcanoes, and places for he must be somewhere, and why doesn't he come forward and say he's there and clear all parties up?' "'Pray, madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, referring to the handbill again, "'who is Clennam and Co?' "'Ha!' I see the name mentioned here in connection with the occupation of the house which Monsieur 
Blandois was seen to enter. Who is Clennam and Co? Is it the individual of whom I had formerly, hmm, some uh, slight uh, transitory knowledge, and to whom I believe you have referred? Is it, ah, uh, that person? It's a very different person indeed, replied Flora, with no limbs and wheels instead, and the grimmest of women, though his mother. Clennam and Co, uh, hmm, a mother? exclaimed Mr. Dorrit. And an old man besides, said Flora. Mr. Dorrit looked as if he must immediately be driven out of his mind by this account. Neither was it rendered more favourable to sanity by Flora's dashing into a rapid analysis of Mr. Flintwinch's cravat, and describing him, without the lightest boundary-line of separation between his identity and Mrs. Clennam's, as a rusty screw in gaiters, which compound of man and woman, no limbs, wheels, rusty screw, grimness, and gaiters, so completely stupefied Mr. Dorrit that he was a spectacle to be pitied. "'But I would not detain you one moment longer,' said Flora, upon whom his condition wrought its effect, though she was quite unconscious of having produced it. "'If you would have the goodness to give your promise as a gentleman, that both in going back to Italy and in Italy too, you would look for this Mr. Blandois high and low, and if you found or heard of him, make him come forward for the clearing of all parties.' By that time Mr. Dorrit had so far recovered from his bewilderment as to be able to say, in a tolerably connected manner, that he should consider that his duty. Flora was delighted with her success, and rose to take her leave. "'With a million thanks,' said she, "'and my address upon my card, in case of anything to be communicated personally. I will not send my love to the dear little thing, for it might not be acceptable, and indeed there is no dear little thing left in the transformation, so I do it. But with myself and Mr. F.'s aunt, ever wish her well, and lay no claim to any favour on our side. You may be sure of that, but quite the other way, for what she undertook to do, she did, and that is more than a great many of us do, not to say anything of her doing it as well. Well, as it could be done, and I myself am one of them, for I have said ever since I began to recover the blow of Mr. F.'s death, that I would learn the organ, of which I am extremely fond, but of which I am ashamed to say I do not yet know a note. Good evening." When Mr. Dorrit, who attended her to the room-door, had had a little time to collect his senses, he found that the interview had summoned back discarded reminiscences which jarred with the Myrtle dinner-table. He wrote and sent off a brief note excusing himself for that day, and ordered dinner presently in his own rooms at the hotel. He had another reason for this. His time in London was very nearly out, and was anticipated by engagements. His plans were made for returning, and he thought it behoved his importance to pursue some direct inquiry into the Blandois disappearance, and be in a condition to carry back to Mr. Henry Gowan the result of his own personal investigation. He therefore resolved that he would take advantage of that evening's freedom to go down to Clennam and Co's, easily to be found by the direction set forth in the handbill, and see the place, and ask a question or two there himself. Having dined as plainly as the establishment and the courier would let him, and having taken a short sleep by the fire for his better recovery from Mrs. Finching, he set out in a hackney cabriolet alone. The deep bell of St. Paul's was striking nine, as he passed under the shadow of Temple Bar, headless and forlorn in these degenerate days. As he approached his destination through the by-streets and waterside ways, that part of London seemed to him an uglier spot at such an hour than he had ever supposed it to be. Many long years had passed since he had seen it. He had never known much of it, and it wore mysterious and dismal aspect in his eyes. So powerfully was his imagination impressed by it, that when his driver stopped, after having asked the way more than once, and said to the best of his belief this was the gateway they wanted, Mr. Dorrit stood hesitating, with the coach-door in his hand, half afraid of the dark look of the place. 
Truly, it looked as gloomy that night as even it had ever looked. Two of the handbills were posted on the entrance wall, one on each side, and as the lamp flickered in the night air, shadows passed over them, not unlike the shadows of fingers following the lines. A watch was evidently kept upon the place. As Mr. Dorrit paused, a man passed in from over the way, and another man passed out from some dark corner within, and both looked at him in passing, and both remained standing about. As there was only one house in the enclosure, there was no room for uncertainty, so he went up the steps of that house and knocked. There was a dim light and two windows on the first floor. The door gave back a dreary, vacant sound, as though the house were empty, but it was not, for a light was visible, and a step was audible almost directly. They both came to the door, and a chain grated, and a woman with her apron thrown over her face and head stood in the aperture. "'Who is it?' said the woman. Mr. Dorrit, much amazed by this appearance, replied that he was from Italy, and that he wished to ask a question relative to the missing person whom he knew. "'Hi!' cried the woman, raising a cracked voice. "'Jeremiah!' Upon this a dry old man appeared, whom Mr. Dorrit thought he identified by his gaiters as the rusty screw. The woman was under apprehensions of the dry old man, for she whisked her apron away as he approached, and disclosed a pale, affrighted face. "'Open the door, you fool,' said the old man, "'and let the gentleman in.' Mr. Dorrit, not without a glance over his shoulder towards his driver and the cabriolet, walked into the dim hall. "'Now, sir,' said Mr. Flintwinch, "'you can ask anything here you think proper. There are no secrets here, sir.' Before a reply could be made, a strong, stern voice, though a woman's, called from above, "'Who is it?' "'Who is it?' returned Jeremiah. "'More inquiries. A gentleman from Italy. Bring him up here.' Mr. Flintwinch muttered, as if he deemed that unnecessary, but, turning to Mr. Dorrit, said, "'Mrs. Clennam. She will do as she likes. I'll show you the way.' He then preceded Mr. Dorrit up the blackened staircase. That gentleman, not unnaturally looking behind him on the road, saw the woman following, with her apron thrown over her head again, in her former ghastly manner. Mrs. Clennam had her books open on her little table. "'Oh!' said she abruptly, as she eyed her visitor with a steady look. "'You are from Italy, sir, are you? Well?' Mr. Dorrit was at a loss for any more distinct rejoinder at the moment than, "'Ah! Well?' "'Where is this missing man? Have you come to give us information where he is? I hope you have.' "'So far from it, I hmm, have come to seek information. Unfortunately for us there is none to be got here. Flintwich, show the gentleman the handbill. Give him several to take away. Hold the light for him to read it.' Mr. Flintwich did as he was directed, and Mr. Dorrit read it through, as if he had not previously seen it glad enough of the opportunity of collecting his presence of mind, which the air of the house and of the people in it had a little disturbed. While his eyes were on the paper, he felt that the eyes of Mr. Flintwinch and of Mrs. Clennam were on him. He found, when he looked up, that this sensation was not a fanciful one. "'Now you know as much,' said Mrs. Clennam, "'as we know, sir. Is Mr. Blandois a friend of yours?' "'No, uh, um, uh, an acquaintance.' answered Mr. Dorrit. "'You have no commission from him, perhaps?' "'I have certainly not.' 
The searching look turned gradually to the floor, after taking Mr. Flintwinch's face in its way. Mr. Dorrit, discomfited by finding that he was the questioned, instead of the questioner, applied himself to the reversal of that unexpected order of things. "'I am uh, a gentleman of property, at present residing in Italy with my family, my servants, and hmm, my rather large establishment. Being in London for a short time on affairs connected with uh, my estate, and hearing of this strange disappearance, I wish to make myself acquainted with the circumstances at first hand, because there is a... Uh, Hmm. An English gentleman in Italy, whom I shall no doubt see on my return, who has been in habits of close and daily intimacy with Monsieur Blandois, Mr. Henry Gowan. You may know the name.' "'Never heard of it,' Mrs. Clennam said, and Mr. Flintwinch echoed it. "'Wishing to her make the narrative coherent and consecutive to him?' said Mr. Dorrit. "'May I ask, say, three questions?' Thirty, if you choose.' "'Have you known Monsieur Blandois long?' "'Not a twelve-month. Mr. Flintwinch here will refer to the books and tell you when, and by whom at Paris he was introduced to us. If that,' Mrs. Clennam added, "'should be any satisfaction to you, it is poor satisfaction to us.' "'Have you seen him often?' "'No. Twice. Once before, and—' "'That once,' suggested Mr. Flintwinch. "'And that once—' "'Pray, madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, with a growing fancy upon him, as he recovered his importance, that he was in some superior way in the commission of the peace. "'Pray, madam, may I inquire for the greater satisfaction of the gentleman whom I have the honour to ha, retain, or protect, or let me say to—' hmm, no, to know, was Monsieur Blandois here on business, on the night indicated in this present sheet? On what he called business, returned Mrs. Clennam, is, ah, excuse me, is its nature to be communicated? No. It was evidently impracticable to pass the barrier of that reply. The question has been asked before— said Mrs. Clennam, and the answer has been no. We don't choose to publish our transactions, however unimportant to all the town. We say no. I mean, he took away no money with him, for example, said Mr. Dorrit. He took away none of ours, sir, and got none here. I suppose, observed Mr. Dorrit, glancing from Mrs. Clennam to Mr. Flintwinch, and from Mr. Flintwinch to Mrs. Clennam, you have no way of accounting to yourself for this mystery? Why do you suppose so? rejoined Mrs. Clennam. Disconcerted by the cold and hard inquiry, Mr. Dorrit was unable to assign any reason for his supposing so. I account for it, sir, she pursued, after an awkward silence on Mr. Dorrit's part, by having no doubt that he is travelling somewhere, or hiding somewhere. "'Do you know uh, why you should hide anywhere?' "'No.' It was exactly the same no as before, and put another barrier up. "'You asked me if I accounted for the disappearance to myself?' Mrs. Clennam sternly reminded him. "'Not if I accounted for it to you. I do not pretend to account for it to you, sir. I understand it to be no more my business to do that, than it is yours to require that.' 
Mr. Dorrit answered with an apologetic bend of his head, as he stepped back preparatory to saying he had no more to ask. He could not but observe how gloomily and fixedly she sat with her eyes fastened on the ground, and a certain air upon her of resolute waiting. Also, how exactly the selfsame expression was reflected in Mr. Flintwinch, standing at a little distance from her chair, with his eyes also on the ground, and his right hand softly rubbing his chin. At that moment, Mistress Affery, of course the woman with the apron, dropped the candlestick she held, and cried out, "'There! Oh, good Lord! There it is again! Ah, Jeremiah, now!' If there were any sound at all, it was so slight that she must have fallen into a confirmed habit of listening for sounds. But Mr. Dorrit believed he did hear a something, like the falling of dry leaves. The woman's terror, for a very short space, seemed to touch the three, and they all listened. Mr. Flintwinch was the first to stir. "'Affery, my woman,' said he, sidling at her with his fists clenched, and his elbows quivering with impatience to shake her, "'you're at your old tricks. You'll be walking in your sleep next, my woman, and playing the whole round of your distempered antics. You must have some physic. When I have shown this gentleman out, I'll make you up such a comfortable doze, my woman, such a comfortable doze." It did not appear altogether comfortable in expectation to Mistress Affery, but Jeremiah, without further reference to his healing medicine, took another candle from Mrs. Clennam's table, and said, "'Now, sir, shall I light you down?' Mr. Dorrit professed himself obliged, and went down. Mr. Flintwinch shut him out, and chained him out without a moment's loss of time. He was again passed by the two men, one going out and the other coming in, got into the vehicle he had left waiting, and was driven away. Before he had gone far, the driver stopped to let him know that he had given his name, number, and address to the two men on their joint requisition, and also the address at which he had taken Mr. Dorrit up, the hour at which he had been called from his stand, and the way by which he had come. This did not make the night's adventure run any less hotly in Mr. Dorrit's mind, either when he sat down by his fire again, or when he went to bed. All night he haunted the dismal house, saw the two people resolutely waiting, heard the woman with her apron over her face cry out about the noise, and found the body of the missing Blandois, now buried in the cellar, and now bricked up in a wall. End of Book Two Chapter Seventeen